Hi there. Welcome to another episode of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship guide and coach, and I'm the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my services or about the podcast, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We'd also really love your feedback, which you can provide by going to the BertScholl.com contact page and filling out the form. Please do. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at But Seriously The Cancer Podcast and on Twitter at But Seriously TCP. And make sure you check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash But Seriously The Cancer Podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. Hey, Carrie. Hey. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Let's begin just to tell everybody what kind of cancer you were diagnosed with and how old you were when you got the diagnosis. Okay, so I was diagnosed in uh, 2012, just after turning 41, stage three infiltrating ductal carcinoma and DCIS. So I had two tumors, two different types of cancer in the left breast. So stage three infiltrating ductal carcinoma, Mm -hmm. which I've come to learn is a type of breast cancer. Yes. And then you also had what? I also had a smaller tumor of ductal carcinoma in situ, or called DCIS. You had stage three, and was the DCIS, was that also, what stage was that? that that's, um, you know what, they didn't, they don't differentiate. They just said it was stage three, period, of the left breast. Because I had two tumors, it was considered systemic. And because I had lymph node involvement, um, so based on tumor size, how many tumors, the fact it was systemic and lymph node involvement bumped me up to stage three. Okay. Yeah. Stage three for sure mm-hmm. uh, with lymph node. <coughs> I'm still like, okay, you had two types of cancer. You didn't just have one. You had, you had no, two types no, of cancer. No, I, I believe in going big or going home. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I'm going to do it. Hell, I'm going to do it big, right? Yeah. yeah. I had stage two rectal cancer in 2007. I had just shy of turning 37. And then two and a half years later, I got stage four metastasis to my liver. So I was like you. I was like, you know, why why just, you know, linger in the small stuff? Let's let's play the big card here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's one up about a million and a half people, right? <laughs> oh, my right? gosh. Jeez. So how did you find out? What, what, what showed up that had you so diagnosed? So kind of a funny story how I found I found my own tumors and and the the way I did is uh I was a single divorced mom and I my kids my teenagers that lived in the house would make fun of me because I had a queen size bed and the girls would say hey mom why do you always sleep on just the right side like you're like a little kid all you know on the one side and I'm they're like man if I had your bed you know because I had twin size beds or whatever they'd say if I had your bed, I would be like sprawled out in the middle. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I can't do that. And so they kept pestering me and pestering me. It kind of became this silly running joke. And so one night I went, Hey guys, I'm going to do it. They were like, you're going to sleep in the middle of bed. I was like, no, but I'm going to go to the other side. (laughs) So just to switch it up a little bit. So it was, um, like two in the morning. And I usually never woke up in the middle of the night, but I did. I had drank a ton of water and I had to pee. Right. So I rolled over in bed to get out of bed. And rather than roll to my right side, which I normally would have, I rolled on my left side. 
And when I did that, I thought, oh my gosh, what did I just roll on? I thought mm. like my remote control for the TV. And then I thought, Demi, you don't have a TV in your room, you know? And then I thought, is it a dog toy? I'm like, no. And then I just thought, okay, I'm woozy. It's two in the morning. No big deal. I use the restroom. I go back to sleep. Again, I made the commitment. I got on that side of the bed. And when I woke up at like six something to get up for the day, I rolled over again and I found, I felt it again. And I went, okay, now I'm awake and that can't be anything good. So I laid on my back and again, I was 40 at the time. Mm -hmm. So I hadn't had my first mammogram. I was about due for it, right? Actually, I was probably nine months overdue for it. And um, I just started kind of doing a self-exam, which if I'm being honest, I had sort of lazily done in the past, but not anything consistent. I was that typical single mom of teens, sports mom, ripping and running. And for nine years, I worked two jobs. So you can imagine my showers were very quick and to the point. There was no lingering to do self-exams and things of that nature. So I did an exam and I felt the one big tumor, which was sort of all the way on the, the left side, think um, about three o'clock um, down from the armpit. And I went, oh, that's cancer. Like that's gotta be cancer. That is way too big. Mm. And then I felt a little further down about the six o'clock and there was a tiny little thing. And I went, eh, that may be scar tissue. Because nine months, or not nine, nine months, uh, excuse me, nine years prior, I'd had a breast reduction. And so I had like the anchor scars where they go around the areola and down. Okay. And then, you know what I'm saying? And so in that straight line down, the scar tissue was where that little one was. And I thought, mm, it's scar tissue. And then I went, yeah, but dummy, there's still that big one. And I was like, shit, that's hmm. breast cancer. So that's how I found it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting the stories people tell about how they found out they had cancer. Mine's kind of boring. I just looked, it's a whole story, but I was passing blood rectally mm -hmm. and finally I was like, had to get checked out. But, and there's a whole drama to that. But yeah, people often, or from my experience with others, you know, it's, it's found in a peculiar way because you described it perfectly when you said, you did a breast exam, you know, but you weren't like, you know, being real detailed. It's because like, most people live like, you know, I'm not going to get cancer. Like, I mean, I, you know, I'm going to check myself for cancer every day. You know, I'm not, I'm not a kook, right? I'm not a, uh, what's it, a hemophilia? No, no. What do you call a person who thinks they're sick all the time? Hypochondriac. Hypochondriac. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. But, and for good reason, because as painfully sad as it is for as many people that get cancer every year. Mm -hmm. most people don't <laughs> right they're not checking for it right so you that's so funny too the kids so sleeping on the bed thing i'm like it took yeah. me so long my wife and i were together for like uh, a little over 10 years mm -hmm. and you know the girlfriends i had in the past i like my side of the bed that i sleep on and it took me a long time before I could sleep in the middle. I was like, why don't I sleep in the middle? I got this whole big old bed. But we get kind of accustomed to our side, right? It's I like still it's... don't sleep in the middle. <laughs> and no. I'm still single. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Peaceful. <laughs> oh, I get it, yeah. So you discovered these lumps. And did you call your primary? You know, um, it's kind of all a blur, but 
But okay. what I do recall is I was a basketball mom, right? So my my eldest daughter was um, a sophomore in high school, and the youngest was uh, in seventh grade. And so my daughter was playing basketball, and I was the booster president uh, for the girls' basketball program. So with that means running snack bar, right? Like at every game, and I'm at every practice, and I'm feeding the team. And I didn't know it at the time, but one of the moms um, – Angela was behind the snack bar and we were, you know, grilling hot links or something. And somehow I got to talking to her and another mom, Norma, and Norma was a breast cancer survivor. And I said, you know, and I don't know how we got on the subject, but I said, you know, I, I kind of think I found something. And Norma just stopped dead in her tracks and said, excuse me. And I told her the story and I'm kind of like, ha, 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 you know, like, I think I was a little bit in shock and then she goes, hold on a minute. And she turns to Angela, who's flipping hot links on the grill and says, Dr. Martin. And I'm like, oh, oh, she's mm-hmm. a doctor. I didn't know she's a doctor. So um, long story short, I told Dr. Martin I had gone to my primary care because I actually had tendonitis that was kind of flaring up because I had mouse and type all day. And so I had gone to the doctor probably a week after this happened, after I found it. And I went for my tendonitis, but I, and I, this is almost embarrassing to, I don't think I've ever told the story, but I said to my doctor after she examined my arm and and I hadn't been with this doctor long. And so I didn't have like a great relationship with her, but it was sort of like, I felt very rushed with her. And I said to her, by the way, I think I found something. And I kind of tried to tell her the story. But, you know, I'm a storyteller, so it takes me a while. Mm. And she was like rushing me. And I, she goes, well, you know what? If you're, you're 40 now, so we'll do a mammogram soon and, and we'll, we'll, we'll check it out. And she walked out. And I told this to Dr. Martin and she was like, oh, hell no. You're my patient now. Right. And so she instantly just sprang into action. And thank God. I thank God for her every day. Like I could cry. She's one of my best friends to date. She sits oh my on my goodness. board of directors for my nonprofit. We are bonded at the hip uh, for life. And she took very good care of me, got me in right away for my first mammogram, which of course confirmed there were two tumors. Then immediately following, I had my biopsies. And of course, I watched them on the screen, which was in and of itself like an out-of-body experience. Watching mm-hmm. that needle go in and actually feeling feeling it despite the numbing because as I mentioned, the the small tumor was along the scar tissue line. And what I found out the hard way is scar tissue doesn't numb. You can't numb it. Really? No. So they got um, biopsies off the big tumor relatively easy, didn't have a problem. But I'm watching him, um, the doctor, uh, push that needle in. I'm watching on the little monitor, you know. And he's having to like really put his whole weight on it to get through that scar tissue. Meanwhile, I'm breaking out in a sweat. The nurse is holding my hand going, you're in pain, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, you think? I'm like, just hurry up and get it. Like, just get it. It's obvious this breast is going to come off anyway. So I probably, like if it ever happened again, I'd be like, just forget it. We're just going to get rid of it. (laughs) You don't know what you don't know, right? So Mm, uh, the- the biopsies confirmed two different types of cancer. Um, Dr. Martin got me with my oncologist, Dr. Ruby, who is also a friend of mine now. And the rest is history. We got moving. Mm. I watched the 
sigmoidoscopy that I received when I went to get a second opinion the first time I was diagnosed. So, you know, it's like a colonoscopy, but the sigmoid colon is closer to the end of the large intestine. You know, it's mm -hmm. like down near the rectum. Uh, and I'm laying on my side and I'm looking in the camera. The doctor's like, that's the tumor. Now he's talking to his students, but yeah, I'm looking at that tumor it was so, you said not a body experience, it was so disturbing Yeah. to see it. It's like yeah. I had a, you know, similar to you, I could feel my tumor. I didn't know it at the time. But, you know, I would eat like a lot, you know, food with a lot of uh, fiber in it. Say I'd eat like some kale or some collard greens with my dinner. And when it's moving out of my body the next day, I'm like, that didn't feel good. You know, and I'm bleeding right. And then once I got diagnosed, there was a little bit of time before they did the surgery, the pre-chemo mm -hmm. surgery and radiation. And I'm like learning what foods to not eat. Because every time I could feel that thing, especially ever after having seen it. Yeah. Yeah. After I had my biopsies, I, I, I literally left that office with ice in my bra. I went to a game because the girls had a basketball game. Yeah. Coach knew I was going in for biopsies, and he came over to me and says, you're okay? I said, yeah, I sit here and don't move. Don't even think about working snack bar. But as I sat there, you know, obviously I, my breast was throbbing in two different places. But even when I left there and went home for the next couple days until I got the results, everything I did, I could feel it. And then it makes you wonder, like, so did having the biopsy, like, disturb it? Did it make it angry? Like, what's the deal? Because I didn't feel it before. Or did I? And I ignored it. And it's creepy once you've seen it, right? Because you know it's in there. And then, then I think for me became the, or started the anxiousness of, let's just hurry up and get it out. Get it out of me. That's all I could think of is get that uh, thing out of me. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I have a friend, uh, and now she's a friend. She was a guest. Uh, her episode actually just came out at the end of uh, the last two episodes of season three. We went so long, I decided to split it into two. Nice. <clears throat> and where were we? Your new friend. Right, but you, you had said that you... I kept you, thinking about just thinking about it out of me. Right. Yeah. She had... So, her name is Christine Bays, and she had to go like months taking a certain medication before they could take care of her breast cancer, before they could yeah. treat it. Mm -hmm. And it was maddening for her. Like, you know, you're talking about what, weeks, mm -hmm. days? I mean, it, and, and it's like, it's, it, it's like, I don't want this in me. Like, take this out of my body. And a couple of things, like, you know, one, when I got diagnosed the first time, my friend Mary, you know, she's uh, she's no longer with us, but she had called me because she had cancer before, and she says, Bert, you know, she's like, I wanted this tumor out of my body, and I told my docs, go as aggressive as you need to, and I wish they hadn't. She'd regret it because then she was doing treatment for the treatment because they hit her so hard that her body just got banged up because she was coming from a place of fear. She was like, which is totally irrational. Right. She was like, get this out of my body. And she said to me, she's like, 
first thing I want you to do is ask your doctor, how much time do I have to get a second opinion? And once right. your doctor tells you, you know, my doctor said, oh, I would want to make a move in the next six weeks. Carrie, my whole body relaxed. I went, oh. You know, that's a not- really great that's really great advice to ask that question mm-hmm. because some of us don't have that the way, like mine was systemic it was moving there was no no doubt about it I saw it you know what I mean but I think that's fantastic that's fantastic advice that she gave you because some of yeah. us like you like we might have and that doesn't sound like long but in the cancer land it actually is a nice time to be able to get in somewhere else and get another opinion Right, because when you're getting a second opinion and you haven't asked that question, uh, the movie Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom. When he, did you see that movie? I when did. He, and he grabs the, spoiler alert everybody, it's the beginning yeah. of the movie, you'll be fine. He grabs the golden head off the thing, replaces it with a sandbag, and the ball starts going after him. Mm-hmm. That huge, massive ball. And you're just like that boulder. And you're just like, that's mm-hmm. how I felt Yes. Before I was told you had six weeks. You have no idea. You don't know if you have six minutes, six days. Like it's, and you've never dealt with most of us. Unfortunately, some people have, but a lot of us, you know, have never dealt with cancer. You don't know. Yeah. You don't know what you don't know at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad for the team that Dr. Martin set me up with because she got me with the chief of surgery too. Mm. And he's no longer with us. He ended up with uh, cancer, unfortunately, but Talk about the sweetest man on earth. And I, I remember when he gave me my results of those biopsies and he just said, oh, honey, you know, it's not good. And I said, I already know. Just give it to me. No, I do. I, I, I knew it. Like, I just knew it. No, but the, It's not good part. I'm just like, that's hell yeah. of an opener. Yeah. And, and I, I said, uh, he, he said to me, after he went through all the medical mumbo jumbo, which unbeknownst to him, I understood because I'm a trained medical transcriptionist. So I know anatomy and I know terminology. And my best friend at the time, Lupe, was with me. And I said, look, as long as he doesn't say it's infiltrating ductal, we're good. Because that's like a really aggressive kind. And mm-hmm. he said, the first one, infiltrating ductal. And I said, well, shit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> leave it to me to get the, what well, it's the most common form as well. Right. So I was uh-huh. like, okay. So there's no treatment. We'll, we'll handle it. But he said, ultimately, you know, you kind of don't have a lot of time to wait. We need to make a move because it is systemic. I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, well, you have another tumor too, and it's a different kind. But, and it's the kind that is pretty much just stays where it is. It's not going to, it's not going to kill you at this point, you know, but the other one will. So we're going to need to get a mastectomy scheduled. I said, okay, well, my basketball team was making history that year going to the state uh, championship. And I was mm. like, well, we're in finals right now. So can this wait? He was like, yeah, that's not how this works. And I said, <laughs> but you don't understand. Like, those are like my kids. They're like, I have 32 basketball daughters on top of my own. And like, I have to be there. I have to cook for them. I have to go with them to these games. And he's like, yeah, no. So we, we literally negotiated for 11 days later, I think it was when I had my mastectomy. Yeah. But that but that time period, I say all that to say that time period when you know that something's in there and you know you have a game plan, like it's gonna you're gonna deal with it, but it's still like that ticking time bomb and it really messes with your head. Yeah, it does mess, mess excuse me. 
It does mess with your head. It sounds like you didn't really have a, uh, a window other than we need to get this done now. Right. And we have like plans. So like you have a vacation. Someone's like, someone might be like, why the hell would you want to go on your vacation now? And you're like, no, no, no. Think of it differently. I'm about to go into surgery and all the adjuvant therapy that's required to treat me. I really want to go on that vacation first. Mm-hmm. And then I want to have my surgery. Or I really want to go with the girls to the championship because like after, you know, that's going to be wonderful. It's going to go as it goes. If it's going to be wonderful, we're there. Then I'll go into my surgery. I just want right. something. You know, you want, you want that, you know, one more bite before you leave. That's it. <laughs> something <laughs> that's delicious. It. Yeah. One more shot, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. And it's sure. systemic. It means it was in your system. Yeah, well, it means? it means it was two different. Well, the way he explained it to me is it's two different types of cancer in two very different areas of the, even though it was the same breast, two different areas of the breast, pretty yeah. far apart. So there was no option of having a lumpectomy. You know, it was like, you got to get rid of the whole thing. So right. I was like, can you just take them both? And he says, well, I mean, I could, but studies show that um, that doesn't increase your survival rates. And so, you know, you're young. I was, like I said, I just, just turned 40, 41. And he said, you know, you're young. You're, you're going to want both. You know, you'll have reconstruction. And um, why don't you let me just take the one? Because I'm not a plastic surgeon. I'm there to, as the mechanic, basically, to get rid of the cancer. And then later you'll see the plastic surgeon when you're done with chemo and radiation. And when you're ready for reconstruction, they can remove the, the other breast and then do reconstruction and, and make it all pretty. Be, and he said that because I already had this set of scars to, to work around from the breast reduction. So better to leave it to the plastic surgeon who's all about the aesthetic, right, and symmetry than the general surgeon. Okay, so the plastic surgeon could remove all the internals of the breast as well? They, he was going to, well, after I had the initial mastectomy, the plan was later the plastic surgeon would remove the remaining breast and then do reconstruction. And so I just went, okay. All right. You sure, know, yeah. I defaulted to him. He was the chief of surgery. He was sweet. He was kind. I mean, he seemed more upset about my diagnosis than me. When he <laughs> came in and he told me, he was like, just brace yourself. I was like, yeah, I already know. Just tell me. He goes, yeah, it's kind of bad. And I was like, no, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm patting his knee. I'm like, it's right. okay. He's like, you can have, you can have a breakdown, honey. This is a safe space. I was like, okay, look, just give it to me straight. I understand the terminology. What the fuck are we dealing with? And what are we going to do about it? Like, I was just like a da da da. And my friend Lupe, who's like a sergeant at San Quentin, she's like super stoic all the time. She's a hot mess now. Right. right and she right. looks at me and she goes, how can you be so fucking calm? And I said, it's okay. She goes, it's not okay. And I said, it's okay. I have 32 basketball daughters watching me and two of my own, plus my son and all his friends. Maybe this is just something given to me to show them how to deal with something because I knew that one in eight women were diagnosed and one in 833 men will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. So I really and truly believed from the gate, this was just sort of a responsibility given to me. And I didn't know exactly where that was going to take me, but I, I immediately thought of my kids and that was it. And, and I just, I had a piece about it. 
Total That's peace. incredible. I can't explain it. That's not a yay me. That's just a thing. I don't know where it came from. I get what you're saying about I can't explain it. I got diagnosed, you know, day one, I call my family mm-hmm. and, you know, we have a, it was 2007. So, you know, we were using like a, a conference line, right? And we had, we borrowed a friend's speaker phone so we could, you know, cause we didn't have two phones and all this stuff, you know, tell my family, you know, my mom's like, you know, dear God, you know, her breath is taken away and tell the in-laws and. I'm just matter of fact. The next day, I was a mess. The next day was when I fell apart, when there was, it was just me. I woke up that morning, yawn, stretch, roll over and go, oh my God, I have cancer. Mm-hmm. Like that's, but a month later, this thought just gently lands into my mind. And, and, and what I hear is, this cancer is a gift. Whether you live or die, doesn't matter. The cancer is an opportunity for you to have an experience in life that you can't possibly comprehend. And I'm like, it wasn't like I thought about it. It just arose and was clear. And when I had my benefit, because we didn't have, you know, my wife had just had a baby and my stepson was nine. I said that at one point over the microphone and my buddy said that after the benefit, they all went out of the bar and they're like, what the hell is Bert talking about? Yeah. But as we got further along in the diagnosis and my treatments and he, t- you know, he was an, an amazing support for me, my buddy Sparks. And at one point he goes, I get it now. Mm-hmm. He goes, at the bar, we were all like, you know, maybe he, it's too intense. He's, he's got cancer. He's freaked out. But they, they finally just were like, okay. Or he said anyway, he understood, like, I'm like, there's no dress rehearsal for life. Like, this is it. So am I going to die before I, my treatment's over within, or am I going to live my life fully? Does that, you know, and, and again, I always say, to, you know, to all you folks listening, like, that's just me. I didn't choose the thought, it just arose, and I, you know, there's no expectation that anyone is going to have that experience. Like we each have our own, like Carrie, you blowing me away that being diagnosed, you were calm and cool. I'm like, okay, there's an opportunity for the children. Yeah. And you know what I I was just thinking about that I didn't share. And I, every time I share my story, I usually um, start off with this is that, so here in Riverside, uh, where I live, there's a, a local mountain called Mount Rubido, and it's where I would get my exercise. And so at that time, you know, I had struggled with weight off and on, and I had gotten in really great shape, really strong, because I was walking up this mountain twice a day, nice. like 5.45 in the morning, and then before I took the kids to school, then I'd pick them up, drop them off at home, and then go right at like 3.45 before everyone got there after work. I should say I've worked from home for 21 years. So that's why I was able to do this. So I was walking around Mount Rubido and I was having this conversation with my creator saying, you know, what am I supposed to do with the last half of my life? You know, at this point, my son, I had my son at 18. And so Anthony was gone in the air force. He had just landed in Korea Mm -hmm. um, doing his thing. May Lisa was in the 10th grade. Libby was in the seventh grade. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, for nine years, I worked two jobs following my divorce. So I had no life outside of that, providing for my kids. Everybody needed braces. Everybody needed driver's training. Everybody needed all that stuff, right? Right. So I just was grinding and getting that done, just just surviving, you know. And 
then I got to a point where I thought, I'm going to kill myself with all this working. I'm just going to sort of adjust my budget, have a convo with my kids. We moved to a cheaper apartment and um, I went down to one job, which is when I started working with the basketball program, right, as a volunteer. And so as I was walking around the mountain, I was saying, you know, God, there's got to be more to life than this. I love my kids. Don't get me wrong. But I've been a mom since I was 18. By the time Olivia hits 18, the the baby of my bunch, I will only be 46. Mm. What do I do with the last half of my life? Yes, I have a job. I love my job. I'm a clinical conference coordinator for an amazing catastrophic case management company. I love my job. But in the end, it's just a job. Right. It's a it's a means to pay my bills, to have health insurance. Thank God. But I said, you know, what am I supposed to do with the last half of my life? I need to feel like I'm making a difference. And it was two weeks later when I rolled over in bed and found those tumors. And I said, Mm. that is not what I had in mind. But at the same time, when I was able to tell Lupe, you know what? I, I can't explain it to you, but I'm okay with this and I need you to be. And then, of course, like you, you make that phone call, right? I called my mom, who I was pretty estranged from Lupe? at the time. Lupe was my best friend that was with me when okay. I got the diagnosis. Okay. Yeah. So when we left there, I looked at her. I was like, now what? And she goes, I know. She had come down. I'm in Southern California. She lives in the Bay Area. And so she had come down for a quick visit, and we were taking her granddaughter to Disneyland the next day. So we kind of laughed and joked, and I said, well, well what are we going to do? And I said, you know. First of all, I need lip gloss. She's like, what? (laughs) So I'm not a super girly girl, but the one thing I do love is lip gloss, right? So I said, this is how we're going to deal with this shit, laughter and lip gloss. I'm going to keep my lip gloss on no matter what, but we're going to laugh. And I said, you know, as a single mom, a broke single mom, I don't buy expensive lip gloss. I buy the cheap shit, right? (laughs) I said, we're going Mm -hmm. to the mall. She's like, you hate the mall, Mike. We're going to the mall. (laughs) Went to the mall. We literally wandered silently looking at stuff. I bought two of the most expensive lip glosses I could buy. Um, We were looking at clothes. Um, She's very athletic. So I think we were like in a Nike place or something, right? We're looking at like workout gear. And I looked at her and I said, um... Does this mean that we have to like pink now? Because <laughs> neither one of us like the color pink. And that's all you see, right? She's like, oh, fuck no. <laughs> I can't do it. And I was like, you can't do it either. And then the next day we went to Disneyland. So that's kind of another running joke. Like, hey, Carrie Madrid, you were just diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. Now what are you going to do? I'm going to Disneyland. I'm going we went to, to Disneyland Dis- the next day. <laughs> I mean, what else can you do, you know? It's, it's how you choose to, uh, and, and it's not for everybody, like you say, and let me just say this to anyone listening. That doesn't mean that you have to do that. That doesn't mean that you have to adopt that. I say, go with whatever feelings you have, acknowledge them, and then just keep moving forward, right? Yeah. And uh, that's really powerful. And something I'd love to add to that is when people are often asked, how are you feeling? They describe their thinking about how they're feeling. Yes. Yeah. And say that again. <laughs> yeah, right. Say that it's again. The, people do not say how they're feeling. They describe their thinking about their feeling. Well, how are you feeling? Well, I'm really worried about how such and such is going to go. Right. That's how you're thinking. Yes. It's fine that you answered that, but you didn't answer the question. Like, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling. Huh. How am I feeling? I don't 
really have words for this. I actually have to, because why, why do I know this? Because I learned that. I realized I don't talk about what I'm feeling. I talk about what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I've never heard, I've never heard that, and that is so true. Yeah, so getting diagnosed, I learned how I was feeling. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling afraid right now. I had a, I kept a blog because I have a lot of friends. I'm, I've always been you know, really active in my community. Uh, I see someone I don't know. I tend to just walk up and say, hey, I'm Bert. You know? yeah. I know a lot of people. So I kept a blog because the phone calls and the texts were already being, come, becoming too much for the folks who had the courage to check in. You know, A lot of folks are like, you know, what do I do? I don't know. So I yeah. kept the blog. <clears throat> That's a great way to, the, to get the, uh, the information out. Yeah, we didn't have Facebook and Instagram. I mean, we kind of, we just had had Facebook, but like, do, uh, do I put this on Facebook? Facebook back then was only it, like, you know, yeah. jokes and pictures of, of things you're doing. And, yeah. you know, we didn't, did not become what it is now. So I kept a blog. And at one point, I'm like, today, how I'm feeling, you know, I'm afraid. I'm not afraid of cancer. I'm afraid of telling you how I'm really feeling. I'm afraid yes. that if I'm honest with you about what's going on in my head, that you're going to think that I'm weak, that I'm not a man, all this stuff. Like, I'm feeling fear about that. Mm-hmm. Like, it was really wild getting intimately related to my thoughts and my feelings, you know? Absolutely. You're talking to the tough chick, single mom, you can't hold me down, right? The one that just keeps grinding and doesn't let a messy divorce, you know, knock you down and all that. And and so for me, yeah, I I sprung into to action and didn't really, uh, I didn't even really acknowledge what I was feeling. I think in retrospect, I was numb and I was yeah. in shock, yeah. right? Because I, I I do recall, you know, with chemo brain, it's I mean. You know how I, I I don't remember a lot, but what I do recall, yeah. But what I do recall is when I said those words to Lupe, when I said, it's okay, like, it's okay, you know, and, and she's like, I still can't believe you said that. And I'm like, but I didn't even think about it. It just flew out of my mouth. It was like someone else spoke for me. And that sounds so weird, but it's true. And it wasn't until I got through, you know, I had initial. Like I said, I had my mastectomy like 10 days later, then instantly rolled into, you know, chemo, then radiation. Then it wasn't until I got through all of that, that it really hit me, like the totality of everything. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other. Yeah. Good. We'll get into that. Yeah. Yeah. That's when I, I would say that's when I started to feel my feelings. But, you know, like going back to telling folks, right? So like that day when Lupe and I went to the mall, same day I got the diagnosis. I remember calling my mom, who I was estranged from, um, and I i don't, I guess you just always call mom first. I don't know. Yeah. I called my mom, and I said, uh, and my mom and dad were divorced when I was very young, so my dad lived in the Bay Area, my mom in SoCal. They were friendly, um, and I called her, and I just said, are you home? She said, yes, and I said, are you sitting down? She oh. said, um, no. I said, sit down. I need to tell you something, and I don't need any questions. And I, I, I don't mean to be rude or curt, but I just need to give you some information. And she has been a secretary her whole life, so I knew she was probably taking shorthand, you know. So I said, <laughs> take, take, take notes right now. 
She's like, okay. And I said, um, I have breast cancer. And I said, I need you to call my dad and tell him. And he can tell his side of the family and you can tell your side. And I have three brothers. And I said, and you can tell my brothers. I said, but please tell everybody I'm, I'm okay. I'm with Lupe and I don't want any phone calls. When I'm ready to talk, I'll call them. Mm. And she just said, uh, okay. Um, are you okay? And I said, and I started to cry and I said, I have to go tell my kids. And I have to get in touch with Anthony because he was in Korea. Yeah. And the only way to be in touch with him was through Facebook. And so I had to send him a message on Facebook and let him know. Oh, my goodness. I know. And the only, the only time I had like a mini meltdown in the beginning was after I told him and we kind of chatted through Facebook, he posted something. And he said, all it said was, please don't die, mom. I'm not ready to fill your shoes yet. And I was like, I cannot die. Cannot. Yeah, I'm about to start crying just hearing you yeah. say that. Yeah, and oh I gosh. knew, I knew right then, like, I, I just had this peace wash over me, like, that's not happening. Because this kid, Anthony, had already helped me raise his sisters after the divorce from their dad and he and I'd been through too much. He had been too much of an adult already. And I was just like, he can't take on raising these kids. This is not going to happen. And that was my stand up bitch and take this head on. And that's what I did. Yeah, I get it. I get it. People who've never had cancer say, I don't know how you do it. I don't know what I would do if I got cancer. And I've come to say, <laughs> I don't know either, but my guess is you do whatever you already do when life gets hard. It sounds like, Carrie, you're somebody who in life gets hard. Like you had uh, three kids. Yeah. You lock it down and get working hard. You do what must be done. Yeah. And, and then after a while, you look back and go, do I really, am I, do I really want to be doing this? And then right. so when you get diagnosed, you lock it down. You do what needs to be done. And then after a while, you go, okay, wait, I have cancer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, wasn't in the game plan, you know, yeah. and for me too, like people would say, oh, I won't go there yet. But, but one of the things, um, about telling people, and like you said, with the conference call and, and your blog and getting that information out is what people don't realize is when you're first diagnosed, you know, your family, your friends, your coworkers, whoever, whoever knows they rally around you and it's. And it's wonderful in one sense. But for me personally, I feel like I spent the first couple of weeks after diagnosis sort of consoling and reassuring everybody else around me yep. to the point where I couldn't feel my own feelings. And so I think I was just in that I'm a fixer. I'm a mom. I'm a, you know, like I take care of everybody. That's what I do. And so at some point it became so exhausting that I was just like, okay, check this out. I'm going to need you all to go get your shit together. Stop coming around me with all that. Wah, wah, wah. And I got this. Like, let me get, it was like, all I could think of was, you know, as basketball, like I got to put my game face on. I got to get hype. I got to get my hype music. I got to do this. Mm. And, and I don't have time for that wimpy, wimpy, cry, cry stuff. Go do that shit somewhere else. Interesting. I'm Mr. Feelings. Like mm -hmm. I've always like my feelings 
run the show, and as I've gotten older, I've learned that I don't to not I don't have to necessarily respond to them, but right. I still feel like, you know, after knowing enough people, like I feel deeply, intensely, I think a little more than the average person, and I'm very emotional. But I, I am too, but I don't show it. But you don't show it, yeah. I I do now. I didn't then. I, you know, I I am. I feel what you're feeling. I feel your energy the minute you walk in the room. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. And so I totally get what you're saying. But I think back then I what I did is instead of dealing with my own hurts from lifelong stuff, right? Um, from life altering things that were said or done to me growing up, instead of dealing with those things, what I did is I poured all my attention and my love and my care into others and didn't face my own shit, if you will, right? And cancers caused me ultimately over the last nine years to face my own stuff. So now yeah. I can express how I feel, but before it was just like I put a bubble around myself and just what you saw was this tough exterior. And and clearly I'm strong, but but really what I needed was someone to just put a bear hug around me. Yeah, and, I get you. And yeah. let me just sort of melt. Yeah. Yeah, I had a difficult childhood. Uh, it, was, it was a bad one. And so being intensely sensitive and feeling other people's energy, I shut it down and ignored it. I had no idea how sensitive I was. I knew there was this part of me that I wanted to shut the fuck up and leave me alone because life is dangerous and painful and scary. Mm -hmm. And getting diagnosed with cancer kind of, it led my, it took me by the hand and gently over the years, even till now, you know, has led me back into like, this is you and there's nothing wrong with you. And there never was. Bam. Right there. You know? Yeah. yeah, I knew you were going to be my new best friend. How <laughs> oh, beautiful. I, I knew it because that's what I say. It's like the things that I went through, and I didn't have a horrific childhood. What I had was um, a lot of instances and, and a recurring theme in my life. You know, different things that were said to me or circumstances that surrounded me led me to uh, be conditioned to believe that I wasn't good enough, I wasn't smart enough, and I didn't fit in. Right. And so, in retrospect, you know, looking back and seeing the life choices I made and the relationships I chose and the husband I chose and things like that, right? Like I had this like aha moment um, and just two years ago, actually. Um, and, and I'll tell you about that a little later. But, but, you know, it's those things that we experience that I feel for me personally when I got the diagnosis, it was sort of like, it, it was, I was in shock, obviously, but I wasn't shocked, if that makes sense. Because for me, it had been a series of unfortunate and um, tragic events in my life that had left me heartbroken, disappointed, hurt, um, shattered in some ways, and damn it, very damaged. And so when I got my diagnosis, I was just like, really? Really? Not like, why me? But like, why right now? Like, mm. what the fuck? One more thing I got to deal with. Like, what I've gone through hasn't been enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then I was like, my yep. kids. All I kept thinking was my kids. Right. And why now when I'm finally in the best shape of my life? Now I'm going to be taken down to my knees by chemotherapy. And, you know, but then I got that little tap on the back of the head. Like, hey, dummy, thank God you're in that good shape right now. 
There you go. Because you're about to handle this. And that's when I realized perspective is everything is not just a, a phrase. It is a way of life. Mm. Perspective is everything. Yeah. And it is a way of life. Yeah, context. The context could have been, oh my gosh, the context began with, you know, you've got to be kidding me. Mm -hmm. I'm finally in a good space. And then you flip the context to, yeah. oh, I'm in the space to handle this. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. And, and I've been a survivor my whole life. I would go back as far as six years old. I've been a survivor. And so now, nine years out, I, I say all the time, it's ironic that I'm given the title survivor and I wear that proudly, but I'm really living life. I'm really living life right now. Yeah. In all my scarred glory and issues and, and life isn't perfect, but I am living every fucking day and making it count no matter what I do. Yeah, you get to that point in your adulthood where you realize that the perfect life, it's not down the road. Yeah, like, it's right now. This is your perfect life with all the messes. It's just, it, it's, it, is, it is life. It is the, how would I say this? It is life at its perfection. And life at its perfection has got a shit ton of really messed up stuff happening. Yeah. That's chaos. how, you know, we're looking for, you know, it, 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 it would say chaos. It's a beautiful mess, I call Be it. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like when my grandkids come over and they tear up my house with all their toys everywhere. And, and then I look back and the OCD in me is like, oh, my God, pick that up, pick that up, you know, mm -hmm. clean that up. Let's teach them how to clean up. And then I'm like, what a beautiful mess. Yeah. That's kind of how I view my life. Nice. Right? I love that. Yeah. And all the crap I've been through, like it, it led me to be who I am today. And I love who I am today. I'm with you. I'm having this conversation with you right now and I'm loving it. And like it, all the skills that I've developed over the years that got me here to be able to do this the way I do it, that I love doing, you know, that, that that's really why I started the podcast. It wasn't, I mean, obviously it was, to, you know, to raise awareness and to give people a space to tell their story and to be heard and to, and of course, so others can hear from your experience and, and not feel alone and perhaps take a little something away with them that they're going to apply to their life. But it really started because I love having conversations with people about the deep, intimate aspects of life. Like, you know, when I was younger, I'd go to a party some people are like, oh, hey, Bert's here. Other people are like, oh, shit, Bert's here. I'm going to go. Like, yeah. you know, I don't want to talk about the most <laughs> deepest, intimate, heartfelt part of your life. And I'm like, I didn't make me. This is just what I like. My buddy was like, I was talking about, you know, trying to, you know, wanting to live like Martin Luther King. Was, you know, a number of years ago, there, my two friends were helping me move. And I said, I'll buy you breakfast and we'll go across the street, get the moving vehicle and go. And I'm talking about living like Martin. And my buddy literally goes, literally says, dude, I'm just eating my breakfast here. <laughs> can I get a minute? But I don't know any other way, you know, it's just like, yeah. So this podcast, it. I'm just doing what I love and you're doing what you're wired to do, doing what I'm wired to do, but it yeah. fulfills me. Yeah. And, and you got that awareness brought to you as well. It's like, hold up. Like, what do I love doing? I want to do what I love. Yeah. 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 Mm. You know, absolutely. Earlier, you mentioned being embarrassed and I'm really glad that you did say that because when your doctor says, 
all right, well, we'll get you a mammogram set up. Okay. And then he walks out of the room. You're like, what do you know? You don't have a, you know, for a person who doesn't have a history of serious medical issues, your doctor says, we'll do that. That's fine. My doctor, <clears throat> I went to him and said, I'm passing blood, doc. Something's not right. He gave me a digital. He says, you got hemorrhoids. Increase your fiber intake. I went back three more times over six months telling him, hey, doc, it's still happening. The fourth visit after about six months, I said, doc, I'm like old faithful. Right. I pass gas and blood spurts out. This isn't right. And he goes, you just, you just continue to keep your fiber intake. You'll be okay. Here's what I'm saying. I spent six months of things not adding up. Doctor said, that's what you do. I said, okay. Right. Right. Uh, you do, you'll do my, uh, you give me my mammogram you know, we'll schedule one down the road. Okay, great. Right. What, what do we know? I, after that fourth appointment, I called back the next day. I said, I want to see a specialist. They said, you need to see your doctor first. I said, I'll see anybody tomorrow or today so I can see a specialist. Specialist, you know, and then the rest is history. Right, right. You know. I just interviewed someone on my show, um, a couple. She was diagnosed with a rare form of breast cancer, and eight days later, her husband was diagnosed with stage three rectal cancer. No. And he, we, so we went over about um, his symptoms, and he had the same thing. And uh, the opposite of you is he didn't go. He didn't go. He kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And then when he went and got that diagnosis, he went, oh, I'm dead. Uh, it's my fault. I should have went earlier. And I think, you know what? It's I put it all off for a while. It's I all it relative. Yeah. I did too. I mean, the thing is, I found my tumors in November. And my son, Anthony, like I said, he stated was in Korea for uh, in the Air Force. And he was actually going to be coming home for Christmas for the first time in a couple years. And so I was kind of like, eh, I'll wait. Let me get through Christmas. But I knew it was there. So I waited probably two months before I said anything. I remember telling my dad. I would talk to my dad once a week, and I remember calling my dad. I don't know why, but I said, Dad, well, he was a cancer survivor. He had mm. kidney cancer. Lost a kidney when I was 14. And so I said, you know, Dad, I, I think I found something. And he's like, what? And I said, well, I, I could be crazy. I, I don't know. Maybe, you know, my period was starting. I don't know. Who knows? And he said, well, I need you to go get that checked out. And I said, okay, Dad, yeah, I will. And then I went on about my life for another two months. And then I realized, like, I probably need to get this looked at. And I remember telling my son and he was like, mom, you need to go get that looked at. And then he left to go back to Korea. That's when I got my diagnosis after. So we all do it. And I think that, you know, a lot of patients I talk to, and I'm sure you as well, like they have some guilt around that or some regret or whatever feelings they have, maybe anger with themselves, you know, about waiting or, or processing, you know, we've said it already a few, a few times um, in this conversation is you don't know what you don't know. There you go. You know, and, and the whole point of doing things and sharing our stories with others is so that now you've heard it, right? So now you, you have to do better. So if you feel something, get it checked out. Right. And my hope with my podcast is I'm sure with yours, which we're going to talk about in two seconds, so you can tell everybody about it. It's the hope isn't just that survivors hear my conversation with you right now. It's that survivors or their loved ones or their caregivers hear this conversation. And then it becomes more commonplace for folks to think I should check and see if I have cancer. I, sh I should go to my doctor for this because I'm really curious for you. And I'll tell you for me, you know, I didn't want to go to my doctor because I was just like, it's just annoying to go to the doctor's office. <clears throat> I was passing blood, 
And I'm like, yeah, I, this happens sometimes. You get a have a hemorrhoid or something, and you pass some blood, and so you eat fibrous food, or you know, I stopped eating meat. That's what happened. It was in the fall of 2000 and wait, huh? It's in the fall of like 2006, maybe the summer. So I became vegetarian because I was like, you know, I should like maybe lay off the meat or something. I don't know. It's just, you know, yeah. I want to eat healthier, eat healthier. Yeah. So I did that and the blood's still passing. And then after a number of months, you know, my wife finally says, you know, why don't you go to the doc? You know, we've talked about this a couple of times. Why don't you just go? Because if it is hemorrhoids, great. Then you can have it dealt with. But it is blood. It's yeah. just the, uh, A, it couldn't be me. Like when I got diagnosed, I'm like, you know, as I'm screaming at the ceiling, crying, you know, I'm not one of these people. Yeah. I'm not someone who gets cancer. I'm a normal person. I don't have a history of health issues. Unbeknownst to me, you don't have to have a history of health issues to have cancer. You're not someone who's already been seeing the doctor for 13 years, twice a week, you know, for whatever. It's like you're just living your life and boom. Yeah, So Absolutely. I didn't Absolutely. think that it would be me. And uh, going to the doctor was annoying. I got to take time off from work. And we yeah. got we got deadlines. And Yeah. That was big for me, too, taking time off work. Because, you know, <laughs> we've got basketball games. And we've got practice. And I've got to get kids back and forth. And it's like, what do you mean I have to take time and go to the doctor? Like, yeah. Yeah. And then you get diagnosed. And you're like, oh. I really and it becomes your job, right? That's that's <laughs> your whole job. It's like going to the job. doctor. Yeah. 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 But you host a podcast. I do. Let's I take do. a moment. Tell everyone. That's how we discovered each other on uh, on yeah. Instagram. I don't know who was who, me or you, but yeah, we found each other. I um last uh, August uh, during COVID, <laughs> I was uh, you know working from home. I've never stopped working. My regular job, and I run my nonprofit. And I, um, I was on Facebook, kind of scrolling, um, trying to pass away the COVID blues. And one of my friends, Evelyn Arrivas, is a is a radio host here in Southern California. It's been with iHeartRadio for like thirty two years or something, her mm -hmm. whole life. And she's married to Chris Donovan, who is also like a comedian and a, a podcast host and a producer and actor, you name it. And he just posted something that said, hey, if you're interested in starting a podcast, um, you know, get at me. And I had been kind of thinking about it. And so I messaged him and I said, you know, it's so weird that I saw your post right now because I was just thinking about this. I know nothing about it. My default thinking, right? Who am I to do that? Yep. Who am I to do that? Right. And who's going to really want to listen? And I said, I'm thinking about this. He goes, well, let's talk. So we set up a time, we Zoomed, and seven days, he, he jokes and says, yeah, like two weeks later, we had like seven episodes recorded, <laughs> and, and we haven't stopped yet. So I, I love it. Um, we, my thought was, it's called Handle with Care, Breast Cancer and Beyond, and it's, a, it's an extension of my nonprofit, which is the Care Project, Inc. So we provide emotional and financial support to male and female breast cancer patients in our Thank area. You. And, Thank um, you. Absolutely. And um, uh, oftentimes I will post on my social media about things we're doing with the CARE Project and people will comment and say, oh, my gosh, I wish I was in your area. Do you do this, you know, nationwide? And I'm like, gosh, I wish. But now look, we're funded on donations and fundraising events and it's COVID. We're not even having a fundraising event. We'll be lucky if we're here next year. 
uh, we get some grants here or there, um, and we're all volunteers. So I just thought, you know, in my mind, the podcast could sort of be an extension of our Survivor Social Club, which is sort of our modern version of a support group. I never went to a support group. I felt like, you know, I was this tough chick, right? I don't need a support group, but I needed to be around other people who'd been there, done that. And I love to host a little social event. So we're going to have a social club, right? And it'll function as a support group, but we're not going to call it that. That was my thought. And so um, the podcast is really an extension of that, you know, so having folks on, and it's not all about breast cancer, because as you know, doing your show, I mean, yes, there's similarities throughout different types of cancer um, physically, but emotionally, psychologically, we're almost all bonded by the fact that we heard the words, you have cancer. There you go. Right. And so my hope is with our show of sharing inspiring stories, sharing information and resources, sharing the tough things and sharing how people deal with it can only help others. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's education, inspiration, or entertainment, that's what we do. Education, inspiration, or entertainment. Absolutely. There are bits of educational pieces people will come away with. Mm-hmm. And then they'll get inspired by the way a person operates. Yeah. And then the entertainment of it. Sometimes you just need to, like, be in on a conversation with a couple survivors. Like, you know, there's... I would tell people who get diagnosed, I'd be like, reach out to somebody who's had cancer. Hang out with them. You go watch a ball game with them and never talk about cancer the entire time, but you just look in that person's eyes mm-hmm. and they can relate to you in a way that fortunately most people can't. Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't want we anyone have... in this club. No, absolutely. And you know, um, one of the series that I do with the podcast is called Whining with Care. So what I do is I get like the first episode, I had two metastatic breast cancer patients in here who, you know, according to their doctors are, you know, never going to be clear of cancer and um, essentially are terminal. And I got them in here and we were sponsored by a wine company and we wine tasted while we whined and bitched and complained about (laughs) all the dumb (laughs) shit (laughs) that people say to us, you know, um, uh, the dumb things that people say to us or the dumb side effects or, you know, whatever. And I just wanted to give them a platform to drop that expectation that everybody puts on us and I dare I say demand that people put on us of just stay positive right don't talk about it don't put it in the universe you know blah 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 you're going to be fine so you know we get tired of hearing that you know because guess what people obviously we're trying to stay positive (laughs) obviously we're trying to live our most healthy life and do what we can but people say these things with the best of intentions so that series is to give them a platform to like you said sit around with other survivors shoot the shit about anything and everything that comes to mind and then also the takeaway for anyone listening is oh yeah i have said that before i won't say that again because i get it now You know, like the example I always give is uh, when I was first diagnosed, everyone, and I meant I announced it on Facebook and all these well-meaning friends were like, oh, honey, you know what you need to do? You need to eat kale. You need to do this. You need to do that. And I was thinking, I already do that. So you're automatically assuming I lived an unhealthy life. And so what that does, as Chris, my producer says is, oh, you know what that does? That shifts the blame to you. 
that's bullshit. And I was like, wait a minute. I never thought of it that way. But people mean well. Your so, producer was the one who said that? Yeah, because he's learned, he's been thrown into breast cancer world. Now he's my co-host too. And so he's learned so much. And he's like, wait a minute. When they say that, it's essentially shifting the blame. That's such a wonderful observation because people don't mean to blame you. Right. And again, it's a context shift. I can say, you know, I haven't been eating well. This is my fault. I'm changing the way I'm eating. Or I can say, I haven't been eating well and I want to eat well and I want to be responsible for my diet. That's me speaking about me. But when someone else is speaking about me saying you should eat more kale, it can easily be interpreted as blame. Like it's somehow your fault. And there's a lot of fault conversation. Let's say you're not feeling well. And you say, oh, you're sick? I go, yeah, I think I caught it from Carrie. Yeah, she was sick yesterday. It's like, who cares? What the hell does that even mean? Yeah. And I mean, I think with COVID and everybody noticing how little they're getting sick now with masks and washing their hands, like, oh, wait a second. Like, you know, we are noticing how connected we are, but there's a, there is a subtle, not so subtle, you know, blame conversation about why we feel, you know, when we're not feeling well, when we're sick, or even when you have cancer, it's like, you know, God forbid someone gets cancer and they're smoking cigarettes. And now they're like, what, what do you, I mean, you're not going to have less compassion for them. Like it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> Why right. are we blaming people? Eat more kale. Or, you know, you know, oh, yeah, well, there's this beetle down in Costa Rica that, you know, yeah. you can order dehydrated. Or, or yeah, I, it, it was a real training I took on. At one point, I finally decided the folks who say these things are going to be my teachers. I'm going to learn compassion and generosity. Mm-hmm. Why? Is in my head that ain't what's happening. And yeah. I'm like, how can I respond in a way that yeah. can leave them feeling good about themselves? You know, leave them with a thank you. It's, you know, it really, you know, I really got into my own thinking. Like, oh, okay, like, I don't want them to communicate with me that way. Like they don't get it. And, and you're on, you know, and I love that you do that. So whining with care is a piece of the podcast. It's like yeah, a, a it's series. It's like a series. Yeah, absolutely. That's so cool. You're doing that. I'm actually, someone asked me if they wanted, if I wanted to have another conversation with her, a re- recent guest, you know, and let's, let's talk about, uh, you know, post-cancer survivorship. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, 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 I don't know. Like wh- wh- if I do that, then what else will I have to say yes to? And, you know, over some time and some, breathing and taking I was like Bert have fun it's yours you do it every while you know I mean you know you got to speak your truth it's like you know and that's what the whining with care episodes do it, it kind of because we go through trying to console like we talked about in the beginning we, we go through trying to console and reassure everybody around us that loves us like we got this we're going to be okay you know all the while we don't know but it's it's like insulting my intelligence if I'm keeping it real when someone says to me oh you're going to be okay you'll be fine you'll be fine and it's like, you can't say that to me. Oh, I see. Not even what, if you're a cancer survivor, you still can't say that to me because you don't know that I'm going to be fine. I respond that way. I'm like, you're going to be okay. I go, maybe. What do yeah. you mean maybe? Well, 25% of people who get stage two rectal cancer like me die. Yeah. What do you say? Like, why are you saying that? I go, I'm just, yeah. you know, like something else you said, uh, stay positive. Yeah. I'm like, Okay. Someone once said to me, like, you know, no sad tears, only happy tears. 
I'm like, you want? I'm like, whoa, hold up. <laughs> I said, I said, okay, thank you. And what am I going to say? Okay, thank you. In my mind, I'm like, you want to know what staying positive is? Having a positive relationship with myself and my yes. self-expression. And right now, I'm crying my damn eyes out. Because in this moment, I had no idea that chemotherapy was going to beat me down like this. I had no idea that rect uh, radiation for a rectal tumor was going to be horrible. Yeah. Am I trying to scare somebody listening? No, because just saying radiation for rectal cancer is horrible, that's just what's up. Yeah. It's really that's painful. It's called keeping it real. Yeah. It's, and when, when that experience results in my emotions just overwhelming me and I'm crying, yeah, I'm getting it out. Sometimes Absolutely. I'll be happy crying. Someone says, what's wrong? I go, nothing's wrong. I'm crying. Like, and I had to grow and learn that one. It's like, you know, you yeah, get the... It's okay to feel what you feel, right? And and that's what I was trying to say earlier. Like, just because you're listening to us now and we're further out and we're in a really good place emotionally, you know, nine times out of 10, <laughs> you know, there's still those days. But um, that doesn't mean that what you're feeling isn't valid, right? Don't get consumed with what society and commercials and your friends and family push down your throat. You know, it's okay. It's healthy to feel what you feel and acknowledge it. There are certain days where we have our survivor social club and a group of maybe nine or 10 will come in and someone who's generally overall very positive and happy person lives a great life, comes in really angry and sits down and can just look at everybody and go, you know what? I'm kind of a bitch today. And you know why? Because I'm really fucking angry. And I don't really want to be angry, but I am mm -hmm. right now. And they know that they can do that here without judgment. And we validate them and say, let's talk about it. Or you don't have to. What the ball's in your court. And it's so healthy to get that out. Because think about how people hold their feelings in, whether they're sad, whether they're angry, whether whatever, frightened. You need to be able to express it and not have someone, yeah, but, yeah, but. Yeah, no, there's no yeah, but. Right. It is what it is. I'm angry right now, or whatever you're feeling. Like, it's or I'm normal. I'm sad, or I'm afraid. Right. Whatever it is. S staying positive is not, st what's the word? Staying positive is not static, right? Staying positive, right. it's a trajectory. Yeah. I'm driving to visit you, and it's a winding road. If I were flying, it could be one straight shot, but... It's not. It's a winding road. It goes back and forth. It's like when you're sailing in a, if you ever sail, like, you know, and you're sailing into the wind, you can't sail into the wind. You have to tack back and forth. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm not angry, but you're going in the direction you want to go, but the emotions are going to be expressed. It's like, you want to, I'll tell you how to not be positive. Don't express your emotions. Keep them all locked up. Right. That's See how that works out for you. Yeah. And I've the tried people that. around you. <laughs> I've tried that. It didn't work out so well. Yeah. I was young and thinking that being strong meant just, well, I would say when I was young, being strong meant shoving it all down and burying it because that was a survival tactic, you know, as a coping yeah. mechanism. But yeah. It doesn't. Absolutely. It doesn't Absolutely. help us. So I listened to one of your episodes and I don't remember which one it was right now, but it's called. Uh, the Care Project Inc. is the name of your website, and your podcast is called 
Handle with care. Breast Handle with and care. Beyond. Okay. Yeah. Handle with care. What? Handle with care. Breast cancer and beyond. Okay. And, and then the care project. See, that's where I was kind of wasn't sure what was what. Yeah. And we care. also have a book called Handle with Care or Your Support Group in a Book. Tell everybody about that. So my friend Margaret Lesh is an accomplished author and a two-time breast cancer survivor. And she came to me. She's part of the Care Project, a part of the Survivor Social Club. She came to me a couple of years ago and said, I have this idea in a way that I want to give back to the Care Project. And so, and her husband's a graphic designer. So he does like all the covers of her book and the layouts. And so she said, Steve and I want to do this book and 100% of the proceeds will go to the Care Project. And it'll also be a book that you can give out to new clients as they come through the door. And, um, and so she said, I want you to, to help write it. And I was like, who am I to do that? Um, but what we did is she's also a court reporter. And so she interviewed 10 other survivors, including, uh, Brett Miller, a male survivor who was diagnosed at the age of 24 mm. and, uh, helped found the male breast cancer coalition, which I'm an advocate for. And so, she asked us all the same questions about different aspects. So first diagnosed, maybe losing your hair, chemotherapy, radiation, uh, how you tell your loved ones, stupid shit people say to us, right? And so Let's we go all back to gave, that one. yeah, right? We could do a whole show on that. So we did, um, so we gave our answers and she just transcribed it all in very raw form. And so it's a great tool that we give, we mail them out. Um, I get them into the treatment centers. And so when someone gets that diagnosis, they can get handed that book and hear from very different people from very different walks of life, very different perspectives. We all handle things differently, right? Some of us grieve losing our hair. Some of us could give two shits. Right. So we talk about all those things. And so uh, so we have the book, uh, Handle with Care, Your Support Group, in a book. You can find it on our website at thecareprojecting.org or on Amazon. Beautiful. And then again, like the podcast is just sort of an extension. And none of this was all planned out. It's just all cohesive, but it never was intended. Like, hey, let's do this and this and this. It's just the way my life's unfolded. And it's such a blessing to be able to reach so many people in different ways. Beautiful, beautiful. I love that. That's, and that's what we want, right? Because the experts in the experience of the diagnosis are our fellow patients Absolutely. and how many minutes do you get with them in the elevator in the waiting room in the chemo infusion lab you know you don't get that much time and when all of your experiences can be you know brought down into this tincture of this book that people can have and read and be like you know like you know i i lost my hair carrie but i didn't lose my eyebrows or my beard i had a beard you know then it's summer now, so it comes off. It grows back yeah. when it gets cold out. But I did, I lost my hair, but I didn't lose my eyebrows or my, or my facial hair. So I was like, you know, cool. Like, Did you lose your eyelashes? No. That was my one vain prayer. Yeah. I was like, I didn't care about losing my hair. I really didn't. I was like, whatever. Because, you know, your whole life you're told, don't cut your hair, don't cut your hair. So then I was like, oh, you can't tell me that anymore. <laughs> so I loved being bald. I swam every day, and so it felt amazing. It was yeah. very liberating for me. Um, but I said, okay, God, here's the thing. I don't care about going bald and I'm going to keep putting my lipstick on, you know, my lip gloss. So I'll be happy. But 
if I could ask for one vain thing, could you please let me keep my eyebrows and eyelashes? And so it was so stupid. And then by the end of my six chemotherapy treatments, I danced out of chemo with very shaky knees with a pink boa, a white fedora, and pink. my eyelashes and very thin eyebrows. However, and I was like, yeah, bitches, I kept my eyebrows, right? <laughs> and then three weeks later, I woke up and it was gone. My oh. eyebrows and my eyelashes were gone. I was like, oh, wait, that's no one tells you that chemo is is sort of like drinking alcohol, right? You have like two or three drinks and you think, okay, I'm good. I'm going to stop now. But that it keeps coming, that the effects. Chemo is the yeah. same way. Yeah. Yeah, radiation is cumulative as well. Absolutely. Yeah, right. And, you know, there's no... Uh, there's no uh, talking around it. It's just what's so. Once you lose your eyelashes and your eyebrows, you look like one thing. Yeah. Cancer patient. <laughs> That's what I said. That's when it makes it real. And I'm like, you just sort of look like this, uh, like like an alien. And I was like, you know, then you're done with chemo and everyone around you celebrates. Okay, you're good now, right, Madrid? You're good. You're good. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not Okay. And that's the fallout, which I alluded to earlier. It's like, you know, once you get through all that stuff, you get through the hard part, so to speak, the active treatment, and then you deal with the fallout. And that's when it becomes real. At least it did for me. Yeah, I can say. So when you, I'm going to ask you, so when you say that's when it became real, can you say more about that? Yeah, so. You know, I had, uh, like I said, about 11 days after my diagnosis, I had my single mastectomy. They give you about, gave me about three and a half weeks to sort of recover from surgery. And then I went into six chemotherapy treatments. Um, very harsh regimen. They, I remember the uh, breast care coordinator that they assigned to me uh, said to me, they're going to come at you with guns blazing. I never yeah. forgot that phrase. I was like, what does that even mean? She goes, um, you're stage three, which initially I thought, okay, they caught it early. I don't know why I thought that, but mm -hmm. they didn't catch it early. Um, I had uh, all 28 lymph nodes removed in my left arm at mm. mastectomy because when the surgeon cut the armpit open and looked in there, he saw gross evidence of disease. He oh could my. see it with the naked eye. So our agreement was, if you see it, just take them out. So he took all my lymph nodes out and of the 28 he removed, six were positive. And so when I woke up from surgery, he said to me, he was walking into the room and I said, oh, there's my hero of the day, you know, all drugged up. And he goes, oh, honey, chemo, or, uh, he said, surgery is not going to save your life. The horses are out of the barn. Chemo and radiation are going to have to save your life now. And I was like, oh, well, shit. Okay, here we go. So mm. the, the nurse, um, what do you call it? Breast cancer coordinator says to me, they're coming at you with guns blazing. That means they're going to hit you with the hardest you know, harshest, strongest chemotherapy all at once. I said, well, what does that mean all at once? So for my cancer, there's three chemotherapy drugs, one of which they refer to as the red devil. I've heard about this. Oh, I'm sure you have, Adrian. That Meisen. must feel reassuring. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. So they came at me with all three drugs every three weeks. So now I hear that oftentimes what they do is like two of the three drugs for several weeks, like lower dose, and then you come back and get the one last one. So it, it drags on longer, but it's like easier to tolerate. So anyways, I, I go through the six treatments. By the fifth one, 
I looked at Dr. Martin, who's now my personal friend, and I said, and she's my primary care. And I said to her and my oncologist, Dr. Ruby, I said, okay, check this out. Five out of six ain't bad. I think I'm done. And they were like, yeah, no, you need to get the sixth treatment. And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that fifth one tried to kill me. So I'm cool. I'm done. I'm done. And they looked at me and said, okay, now we're going to take off our doctor hat and be your friend. Bitch, you're getting that last treatment. And I was Mm -hmm. like, okay. So I get through my chemotherapy and then I had a month off and then I did five weeks of radiation, which at that point I was physically depleted from chemo. I had to drive 25 minutes each way myself, drive myself to radiation, which is Monday through Friday. So you're talking to someone who's worked from home for over 20 years and now I've got to commute. So I get over there and I meet Deshaun Irwin and Anne, who were my radiation therapists and are now my personal friends as well. I made friends with all my medical team. Apparently. <laughs> yeah, I like because I'm like you. I like to talk to everybody. So um, they got me through radiation. And I just remember um, probably three weeks in, you know, the burns were pretty intense and I was exhausted. I mean, you think you've experienced exhaustion and then you have radiation. Oh, my God. Right? And it's just like someone pulls the plug on your on your life. Or really, how about your surgery? After, you know, when your body says, oh, I'm going to heal now, coffee yeah. ain't fixing that. You stop and you That's are it. done. That's it. You're toast, man. You're just toast. And so I remember being about halfway through radiation. I was waiting in the waiting room to get called back. And Deshaun came over to me, my radiation therapist, and he says, how you doing, honey? And I said, I was kind of tearful for the first time. And I, with this total stranger, right? And I mm-hmm. said, yeah, I'm, I'm not okay. And he said, uh, I see you looking in your phone. What are you looking at? And I, sh- I showed him a picture like on my Facebook or something. And he goes, this is you? And I said, yeah, before cancer. And he goes, I still see that woman. It's mm-hmm. in your eyes. And I was just like a blubbering mess. So mm-hmm. I say all that to say that my final radiation treatment, I am open wounds, a blackened armpit, um, just completely burned. And I'm laying on the table, you know, flat on my back, arms open, and I'm burnt to a crisp, one breast. And at the end, I hear these footsteps running up the ramp to come into the room, you know, because they shut the door when they radiate you, so they're not exposed. (laughs) So this person comes running in the room, you did it, you're done, and it's Deshaun. He jumps on top Mm. of me, sort of, and gives me this gentle hug and and a kiss on the cheek, and he said, I told you you could do it, you know, and him and Ann just really surrounded me with so much love, and my oncologist and my chemo nurses, angels, everybody is checking on you when you're in active treatment, right? Yeah. And then you finish. And they go, go home. We'll see you in six months. Take some time to heal. And that's when the fallout hit. I got on my couch because I couldn't do anything else because I was exhausted. And the totality of everything I had just been through was physically evident when I looked in the mirror. And emotionally, everything I had stuffed with that shield of let me just get through this and handle this shit just melted away. And I always say I felt like a baby bird in a nest when I was in treatment and all these people taking care of me and feeding me and looking after me and protecting me. And then you're kicked out of the nest to go home and manage shit on your own. Right. And you get a headache and you go, oh, my God, is it in my brain? Mm -hmm. And your back hurts and you go, is it in my spine? Has it gone to my bones? Am I going to die now? Holy shit. 
And that's when I had my first meltdown. You know, I landed on my couch for three weeks of eating whatever I wanted. Didn't talk to anybody. I was in a total, now I know to be like a total depression. And yet I'd already started my nonprofit and I was mentoring others. And I thought, okay, bitch, get it together. You, you take your own advice, get up and get to living. But I have to acknowledge that I went to a very, very dark place where I even thought I did. I went through all this to live like this. This is not living. And there Mm. was a part of me, I was never suicidal, but there was a part of me where I went to a very dark place and I thought, I'm okay if I don't ever wake up. And then I went, yeah, no, I can't do that. I have kids, you know, like get out of your head. So it's, it's that fallout, you know? And so that's why I say all the time, feel whatever you're feeling, express it, don't stuff it. Because I'd rather see you be a hot mess and, and slowly but surely work through it and get better and come out stronger than to be this tough badass that stuffs everything and everyone thinks you're fine. So they quit checking on you and then you feel all abandoned, but oh it's your my. own fault, right? Because you, because you've led everybody to think you're fine. And then you go into this hot mess express. So thank you for taking us through all of it. You know, asked you what it was like and you brought us into the experience of radiation where you felt you couldn't get any further. And then that tech, Deshaun got up, you know, beneath your wings and gave you what you needed to move through it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then you ring the bell or whatever, you go home and it's crickets. Yeah. And you're, you were a little bird, you're sent on your way, but the nest got knocked out of the tree and mama bird left. Yep. And you're just sitting there and it's a perfect way to put it. It's uh I've heard some people say it's the most difficult part of the experience. For me, I'll say the most difficult part of the experience was like going through treatment, wondering if I'm gonna live. Mm-hmm. But the second hardest part was when everything was over. And I was sent home. And there was no one checking on me. Carrie, being a guy, being someone who had a rough childhood, I hardened to life. I didn't need anybody's help. I met the, you know, anything from being home from the grocery store with three bags, four bags of groceries, trying to unlock the door. Someone says, you need a hand. I say, no. That's me. It's automatic. I don't need your help. Yeah. When we had to have that benefit, because my wife said to me, sweetie, we have a nine-year-old and a four-month-old. And neither of us are working. How do you think this is going to work? I finally told someone that we were having a benefit. And I came home and I told her because I was so proud of myself. And she was happy because I don't ask for help. Right. And so over the many months of pre-treatment chemo and radiation, then surgery and recovery, then post-treatment six months of chemotherapy, that whole year, I really softened to life. I softened to myself. I allowed myself to be cared for. Early on, the doc said, well, what's your pain level? I go, it's not bad. My wife turns and looks at me. She's like, excuse me? Right. You are on like, what, what, I don't even, can't remember what it was. 10 milligrams of morphine every day. Honey, your pain level is 
rough. You just like, what do you, yeah, because you don't feel it. And I go, oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't, it's automatic. You know, how are you feeling? I'm good. Okay, maybe I'm not so good. And when I said I'm not so good, that meant I was horrible. Right. Till I finally would say how I felt. I became vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I would make, uh, you know, uh, jokes with the nurses, you know, innuendos, flirtatious innuendos. Nothing, you know, just you know, just to make them laugh, make me laugh. Like, whatever. Because they could tell I'm a kind person. I'm not being a pig. Right. I'm, I'm being silly. Right. And then finally I looked at one of the nurses and I said, I know why I do this. Because I feel so emasculated mm. by telling you how I feel and accepting the care you offer. And she's like, uh, she starts laughing. She's like, can't even believe you're telling me this. I'm like, she goes, but I get it. I go, yeah, I don't, I just want you to know, like, I mean, it's, this is really hard. And so I finally get myself to a place where I'm naked with these people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Physically and mentally and emotionally. I was in radiation and I had uh, boils on my testicles the size of my thumbnail. And there'd be like five whiteheads on each one. And, are, and there's many of them. And I had like four or five radiation texts, you know. And these women are all bent down and just like staring at my junk. And I'm just like, is this actually happening? Like, right. Is that, You're like, is, is this my life? Does anybody know that these are my generals and maybe I don't want it just to be like, uh, you know, but show and tell show and tell. Yeah. It took, it took, you can hear it took so much to allow myself to be cared for. And then I go home and it's over mm-hmm. and I'm not ready to go back to work mm-hmm. because my body got hammered by the treatment. Yeah, I'd go in to see a doctor for side effects from the chemo that I'm seeing, like, you know, a pulmonologist for us and something's wrong with my breathing. Come to find out I had a, uh, I had simply had a systemic atrophy, had mm-hmm. systemic atrophy from the treatment because I wasn't exercising. My exercise was to walk either to the bathroom or the fridge. That's it. <clears throat> yeah. And so when I would go in to see, for an, when I would go in for an appointment, I'd stop by the chemo lab. Because the first time I got diagnosed, I didn't go to a chemo hospital. I didn't go to a cancer hospital, excuse me. I just went to a good quality hospital about an hour away. And they have you know, an oncology department with general oncologists. I'd go in for my appointment to see for one of my side effect issues, and I'd wander over to the chemo lab if I had time. And I'd find myself talking to the nurses and then feeling disappointed and they were too busy and I had to walk away. And it finally struck me. It's like, dude, you're struggling, man. You're alone. You allowed yourself to be so cared for. You literally became the little bird. And now there's no one around. Mm -hmm. There's no one checking on you. What if something happens? Who's going to know? I'm coming up on 10 years uh, cancer-free. It'll be this December. Nice. Should I be so lucky? And I believe that'll be my last scan. Because mm-hmm. it's 10 years when you've had stage four, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I think it's 10 years. What do I know? I kind of stopped paying attention, Gary. Yeah. Was, you know, it's, just, it's whatever it is, it is. And my doc, yeah. is, she's amazing. Yeah. But... I wonder if this is my last one. A friend just reached out to me and I said, I'm thinking the same thing because her doctor told her 
you're good. You don't need to come in anymore. She's like, what? <laughs> you know, my doctor still does blood work on me every six, three to six months. I see her. Um, because I'm not on any of the uh, estrogen blockers that people that had my type of cancer um, take at, to help them keep cancer at bay. I was unable to tolerate them all. So mm. I just live my life the best way I can. And so as a result of that, she watches me like a hawk, which is good. But I probably have a scan once a, once a year. And I will be approaching 10 years in February of 2021, 2022, sorry. We're already in 21. Imagine that. So it's kind of a blur, you know. Um, it's how do you feel when you when you get your scans? Do you still have scanxiety? Two-part answer. It does vary. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not so good. Sometimes it's okay. And now they give me Benadryl and some kind of steroid prednisone dear god because i had a mild reaction so that can make me a little less comfortable Got it. um i learned a technique because to answer your question you know scanxiety was not pleasant and uh and you're coming up on it and wondering fortunately because i'm out of area they give me my results the same day oh uh but going in, you know, as I was a process, I learned a process called clearing. And what you do is so I have someone that I call and that either I've trained or they already know, they're already trained, to clear me, to ask me every single concern I have. And then when I'm done, be like, okay, what else? Oh, you're done? Okay, what else? Get it all out till I've expressed every possible concern about what could happen. And then that person will recreate what they hear so I feel heard and seen. And then from there, I or we create who I'm going to be going into this scan or in going into this week that precedes my scan. And then sometimes, you know, I'll, you know, when I was really, really anxious in the early days, you know, have them on deck that day in case I needed to call and, and, and represent myself to who I'm going to be inside of this. And it's really powerful. I was going to say, that sounds very, very powerful. Not just and, useful, but powerful. Yeah, and it's, it's a great way to, if you're going to go present to a group. Absolutely. I mean, you can do it for anything. Absolutely. That's what I was just thinking. Yeah. That applies to multiple situations. But it really helps with an upcoming scan and I shared it, I've shared it twice so far on social media. So now I'm just gonna, you know, in, in the comments, so I'm gonna pr provide a post. Yeah. You know, and uh, perhaps do more on it and let people know if it's made such a difference for me because why did you ask? Because scans can be like, everything's going fine. And then out of nowhere, right, it'll hit you. You're like, oh damn, I got a scan in three weeks. Mm -hmm. Oh man, why? Why are we having a scan? To see if I have cancer again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and for me, um, approaching 10 years with, in my cancer land, dealing with so many breast cancer patients that do end up metastatic, a lot of them have their recurrence diagnosed at one year, five year, 
10 and 20 years from date of original diagnosis. And so every year I celebrate and I'm sure I annoy the shit out of a lot of people on social media, but I don't care. I celebrate every life, every day I wake up, I'm like so full of gratitude, you know, um, but I hesitate with, I'm actually hosting a, like a celebratory um, benefit, like a dance party type thing. Right. And it's going to benefit my nonprofit, but it's a celebration of my 10 years, making it to 10 years from data diagnosis. But Beautiful. in the back of my mind, I hesitate to, to do so because I'm like, I don't want to jinx it. Like I went through all the, I went through all the what ifs in my brain. Like, what if I host this big thing? And then like a month later I'm diagnosed again. And then I went, okay, well, what if you had one hell of a party, <laughs> you know? So again, perspective is everything is my lifestyle. So I acknowledge it. It's a reality in my world that it could happen. Am I putting negative into the world? No, 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 I'm not. But it's always in the back of my mind. You know, it's always in the back of my mind. Yeah. Yeah. My uh, son's mom, we split up in 2010. Or she had the conversation with me. There was a lot of tough years, but we're super close now. I just had, I just house sat for her and her husband for like 10 days while they were out of town, took care of their nice. dogs. And like, I love them. They're wonderful. Yeah. And uh, that took a huge amount of work and I, and, and perhaps a little luck too, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, she's the one who says to me, you know, she's like, notice that you are careful about what you think and do because you're wondering how it will affect the future. She's like, you're kind of creating the future. She didn't say kind of. She's like, you're, you're creating, that's the future you're creating. That's the future you're living into. That worry is literally the future you're living into. I was like, wow, that is so in my bones, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Mm -hmm. You know, I, there's a lack of trust there, you know. It's just like, I don't want to jinx it. Do you think it's part of our, how we grew up having difficult situations and being survivors, whether we wanted to or not, way before cancer came, right? Do you think that plays into that? Like, I oh, I feel like, um, for me, I'm, I'm not living in what if land, but I'm always got a plan B. I'm always, well, this is my goal and this is what I'm going to work towards. But if that doesn't work, I'm going to pivot over here and do this. Like, I don't know. I feel like that's sort of my default thinking and I, I don't let it run, run my day-to-day -day life, but it's always there. Even with relationships, I always have this like, yeah, I hope that this happens, but if in the event it doesn't, I got this and this, like, I'm not going to fully let myself open to that, which is why I just don't do it anymore. What's it like when you pack for a trip? <laughs> well... <laughs> It's funny you should mention that. I was cleaning out my closet the other day because I have a ton of clothes I don't wear. Um, and I was telling a, a friend of mine that I was cleaning out my closet and we were talking about where to donate these clothes. And I said, you know, what's interesting is I always have all these clothes. But when my dad was dying and I got this phone call and I had to hop on a plane, I literally grabbed a duffel bag and I shoved some essentials in it. And I lived out of that bag for three weeks. And when I came back, I was like, 
oh my God, I don't need anything else other than what was in that bag. And it was eye-opening, but it's a constant management thing for me. I'm constantly cleaning out. Even here at the office, I have to tell my secretary, don't save all those plastic bags. Go find someone to give them to. They can use them for poop bags or whatever. Like, like no, we're not hoarding anything. It's, uh, it's interesting. I uh, have learned that I don't need to bring everything I own every time I pack a suitcase. Yeah. Uh, in my backpack that I tend to take with me if I go anywhere, any distance, uh, there's pain medication, digestive enzymes, uh, a few different um, remedies, like some herbal remedies. Mm -hmm. I have a colostomy for my first surgery, so there's always, you know, that's that's just a given. You know, I bring like, have yeah. to bring some uh, materials, some uh, parts and pieces. I can't think of the word. Supplies. Uh, supplies. Thank you. That's the word. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, sometimes I'll bring supplies. I'm like, okay, why not just tell the truth? I'll think to myself, I live four hours away from New York City. And after 9-11, we went, me and a group of friends went to New York. And somebody said, do we want to drive into the city or do we want to park in Jersey and take the train? We're all on the same page. So I was like, right, because if we drive in the city and something goes down, the bridge is going to be packed. We'll never get out and the car will be on foot. But if we park in Jersey and take the train, we can get out on foot and then get to the car. Like, that was the first time I'd actually had it happen in real life. But it's always been like that in my head. Sometimes I'll pack supplies. And I'll be like, I'm literally packing them for what if I get stuck up here for a month? What if the power grid goes down again, but this time they don't fix it? What if someone hacks the system? Like, I live my life noticing in the back of my mind this little part that wants to get as loud as it can where it's like, oh, you never know. You better bring one of everything. Like it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's a little bit of my crazy that I'm now letting the world know about, you know, it's, uh, yeah. it's, and you ask, and do you think it comes from my childhood? I have two part answer. I do think it's a result of my childhood because I learned that even in the home, even in the nest, I'm not safe. Mm -hmm. But the other piece is I also think it's my personality type combined with that. Cause sometimes people have that be their experience and that's why they're so God awfully successful. Yeah. Me. Right. It's the reason I believe so far why I'm not successful to the degree that I would like to be. Mm -hmm. Because my personality type combined with what I experienced, I get really anxious about things. I told you earlier in this episode, there's a woman who was a guest and she wants to just have a, she wants to come back again, have a survivorship conversation. The crazy in my head, here's the thoughts. Uh, what if more guests call me back and they say they want to have conversations and I don't want to have it with them? Then what am I going to say? What if we have this conversation and then it shifts the whole trajectory of the podcast? And what if it's not as good as all the, and finally I just messaged her and said, let's do it. Mm -hmm. Because and this it. was like maybe after a week or longer of going back and forth. And that's growth in my life because normally I just would have said maybe and then never got back to her. Got it. And I'm yeah. remembering someone else now who is a practitioner, not a survivor, who wanted to come on the show. 
And you know, the concern is, well, what if I mess my show up and then people don't want to hear it? It's like, yeah, get out it, of your own head. Get yeah, out get out of your own head yeah. and just live your damn life and do what you love, yeah. fool. You know what? You know what? There's something that you said, like packing your supplies, right? So I don't know if I mentioned it or not, but when I was in chemo, you know, there's at some point when it builds up in your system and builds up in your system, your eyes are running like water. Your mm. nose is running like water. So when your eyes Forgot are so watery. That. Yeah, the yeah nose, when your the eyes weird... are, all of that, right? All the things. And uh, you can't see straight because your eyes are so, you know, watery. Well, when my eyes finally stopped watering months later, I was trying to watch television. I was recovering, I think, from radiation. And I, tr I like hit the remote control to guide and I was trying to read the guide. Now, I'd had LASIK surgery years before, probably nine years before and corrected my vision to perfect vision. I realized I couldn't see. And I was like, what the heck is happening? Like, so I did the whole close one eye and look out of that eye, then close the other eye. And when I closed my right eye, I realized I could not see out of my left eye, which just had perfect vision. And I was thinking about a week before, I remember I was um, finishing, well, I, I think it was my last treatment. And I felt the pressure in my left eye change. Like it just sort of was like a pop kind of, not a hurt, but kind of like a, ooh, what was that? And I just went, what else could it be, right? I mean, all these side effects from chemo, I had crazy side effects. So I just chalked it up to that and went on my way. And so anyways, when I realized I really could not see, end up going to the eye doctor, because you know, when you start cancer treatment, you don't go to the dentist, you don't go to any other doctors, you just handle the cancer, right? Right. So when I got my eyes checked, I realized um, my doctor was shocked, but my cornea had collapsed in my left eye. So I couldn't see at all. Like I see shadows. I see the, uh, not shadows. I see the outline without um, a crazy contact. So what it, what happened is I have a, a mm. condition called keratoconus and that is a collapsed cornea basically. And it's a side effect of a botched LASIK. So when they did my LASIK surgery before surgery, my eye was shaped, my cornea was shaped like a football. And so I had astigmatism and you can't see and all that. So what they mm. do is they take the laser and they shave off the outer edges of that football shape to make your cornea round and therefore you can see. Well, they went too thin on the left side. And they don't know if it's, you know, chemotherapy related or not. Who knows? But the bottom line is my cornea collapsed. So now on top of cancer, <laughs> I'm blind in one eye. Mm-hmm. I can only laugh about it because it's like, seriously, whatever. So um, I was fortunate enough. And even to this day, I have one specially made contact lens that fits in. It's called a scleral lens. And it helps me to see more than just your outline, but I still can't really see all the details. And then on top of that, um, they just prescribed me glasses that can go over it and sharpen it a little. Mm. And also now correct my right eye because now my right eye, the vision is going so I said From all that surgery? to say, no, I, they don't know if it's surgery or just aging at this point. Who knows? I'm 50 now. You mean it's going, but it's like your vision's not as good. It's It went from 2020 to 2075 hmm. on the right eye. So, um, but without my contact, I'm completely blind in my left eye. And so I have very special supplies. It's not like a soft contact you can just pop in. It's got plungers. It's got special, three different special solutions. So it's like a process. If I go anywhere, 
I have to think about taking all my supplies with me and I can count out and go, I use three vials of this per day. But when I travel, I'm always like, nope, because what if this? And because you can't just get this shit anywhere, right? So I'm like, I, that's the first thing I thought of when you said that. It actually hampered me doing anything. I, I actually wouldn't travel by myself because I'm always afraid if that contact falls out, comes out, cracks, breaks, I need a seeing eye person with me. Mm. Because have you ever closed one eye and tried to drive or close one eye and just try to, yeah, it's all bad. So, yeah, but I, but I finally got to a place like you where I went, I can't worry about all that. I'm just going to live my life. And what's the worst thing that happens? The worst thing is you'd have to reach out for help, right? God forbid. God forbid we actually ask for help. Yeah. And admit that we're vulnerable in some way. Yeah crazy. Yeah. So after I had had all the treatment the first time when it was over, I went and, uh, I don't remember how it worked, but yeah, I had great insurance because of my job. So I went to this really nice, uh, uh, I don't even, I'm not a glasses person, so I don't know the words. I went to a really nice glasses. They have, they have, a, they have a great bunch of doctors Optometrist? There. Sure, let's call it that. Okay, let's go there. <laughs> the ophthalmologist or the optometrist? One of those. And she did my eyes, and she's like, okay, you've got to, like, we got to bring your eyes in. We got to do this thing to pull your eyes in from the sides and all this corrective stuff, and here's the lens. I told the nurse practitioner who worked in the, with my oncologist that it affected my vision. She was like, no, it couldn't have. And then when I ended up getting a pulmonary embolism post-chemo. Oh, oh, yeah. I was like, why am I so tired everywhere I walk? Why am I just short of breath? They're like, they give me all these tests. They finally give me a scan. I go home. They call that day. They're like, please come back right now. You cannot drive. So I'm going to drive for you. You have a pulmonary embolism. Oh, shit. So I'm like, so this was from the chemo, huh? And she's like, no, you can't assume that. I'm like, oh, I see. The vision is not from the chemo. The pulmonary, the pulmonary embolism is not from the chemo. I'm like, easy, tiger. Yeah. It's okay. Y'all gave me the mild, long list of possible side effects, and I got most of them. Right. You, you don't need to defend. You don't need to deflect. It's like, it's cool. I'm alive. Right. Yeah, maybe I'll go cry about it later. But yeah. right now, it's just like, I'm alive. And uh, it, my vision needed so much correction that two years, three years later, when I finally got around to getting glasses again, again, I'm not a glasses person. I'm not accustomed to the whole thing. My doc's like, it's a different insurance. So I go to a different place now because you can't ever go, you know, it's yeah, that craziness. Yeah. And I, he's like, what do you have this prescription for? You don't need this. I'm like, because uh, I needed it. He's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, you, you don't unneed this prescription. Did you make a mistake? I go, no, I had chemotherapy and I think it really messed my eyes up and made things weird. And he's like, okay, good enough. Moving forward, you don't need it. You know, I think he was kind of like, you know, yeah. you know, oncology and chemotherapy and vision, you know, that's not his specialty, right? <laughs> right, right. right. You know, maybe, maybe there's, and if it's a rare side effect from chemo, you know, they're not going to know. Right. And how's that when you go into your treatment and you suddenly realize like, oh, wait, it's not a standard protocol for each person? No, we're designing as we go along. It's create your own adventure. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, I tell you. Laughter and lip gloss. See, this is how I got through all this shit. Yeah. Right. You're like first the cancer, then the eyes. It's like, do I hear yeah. locusts? Are there locusts right? out in the yard? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. It was debilitating for a while. I'm not going to lie. It was no. probably the, the time that I became uh, one of the most vulnerable because the thought was, you know what? I can live without breasts. I can live without, you know, whatever. However, my independence would completely be stripped in my mind if I go blind. And I'm like, oh my God, what if the other eye and what are the, I mean, it was almost as much anxiety as thinking about a recurrence of cancer, you know, like I can't lose my vision, but then my mindset, thank God switched to, okay. So if I had to lose either vision or hearing, I'll, I'll go blind because I need to hear music. Cause that's, my mm. you know, so I mean, I just, what else? Like, what else? What, what next? Else? Yeah. Yeah. I saw a cat jogging down the road and he, his, one of his arms stopped at the elbow and I just had my colostomy not that long ago. It's been like since 2008, but back then and I looked at him and I thought, I think I'd rather have the colostomy. Mm -hmm. He'd probably look at me and be like, I think I'd rather have the no arm, you right. know, but right, I don't right, know right. who knows, but it's, uh, these you do, funny you deal things. With it. You deal with it. Yeah. You get what you get yeah you get what you get and then it's the, you know some some stuff we're just not in control of so what can we control you know how much are we in control of how much are we actually in control of what can right. we say that we can 100 percent control i can't think of much I, I can't think of anything right now yeah no it's we like to be in control and mm -hmm. when you get diagnosed, you're like, oh, I'm in control of kind of nothing. Yeah. That that was the hardest part for me. Is that that right? was the hardest part for me because, you know, like no matter what happened, the divorce, the whatever, the single motherhood, like it didn't matter. Like I was in control. Right. And then you're given this diagnosis and you get put in this chair and all of a sudden they're putting poison in your veins and you're like, this is not happening and I have no control. And the side effects, like each treatment, I had six treatments and each one was very different. Each one was very, the first one just knocked me on my ass. Like, and then I realized in retrospect, I was like, oh, I couldn't swallow. Oh, my throat was swelling. Oh my gosh. And I didn't tell anybody because what happened is I got taken to chemo and then someone took me home and said, okay, are you good? And I was like, yeah, I guess. I guess. I never should have been left alone with two teenagers that were clueless, Right. Right. So, I mean, and then the second one, I remember feeling like, oh, that was pretty good. And then the third one, I had this random side effect that was, um, I was numb from, I never had neuropathy in my hands or feet, thank God, because I still was running to basketball games and typing all day long. So I needed the, the hands and feet to work, but I went numb from like my belly button down to my knees. Let that sink in. And I'm drinking all this water, all this water, all this water to flush the chemo. And I'm like, I must have to pee by now, but I don't feel it. So oh, let me go and no. sit on the toilet and see what happens. And I would only know that I was done when I could hear it stop. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm done. It was crazy. And that happened twice. And then I think chemo treatment five, which was when I wanted to quit, I felt like I had ants in my head. Do you remember the old commercial back in the day when they were like, there was like an egg 
frying and it said something like this is your brain on drugs this is your brain on drugs like that's what my head felt like it was like it had gone to sleep and I was telling my oncologist I was like Dr. Ruby I feel like my there's a million ants in my head she was like well that's a side effect I haven't heard of before I'm like I think you're frying my brain like literally chemo is frying my brain I still think that to this day like my cognitive skills are shot. I mean, my chemo brain is real. Um, but yeah, yeah, so, you know, but what are you going to do? You're out of control and all you can do is kind of ride that wave. Yeah. These are the cards I've been dealt. Mm -hmm. And I can play them or I can be pissed off at the universe, pissed off at God, pissed off at whatever it is that you're pissed off at, however you operate in the world, for having gotten these cards. And really, when I came to that realization, oh, it doesn't feel good. It's like after my wife ended our marriage, you know, I'd never known what hate felt like. And, uh, my, when I was a kid, I'd say, I hate my brother. And my mom's like, you don't know nothing about the word. You don't know. She would never say that. She said, you don't know anything about the word hate. You've got to love someone dearly before you can know hate. She's like, that's the word you shouldn't even be using. Well, I felt hatred. And, it's not, and I don't feel it now. And it was when I realized that I don't want to feel this. I don't want to feel this. Well, how do I make this go away? I called my buddy. I go, let's go out for a drink. I go, what does forgiveness mean? The hell does that even mean? He's like, it's giving up the right to resent another person. Mm -hmm. And so that's a whole conversation. But I, I wrote this tune. <clears throat> and uh, I'll just sing you the, the opener, which says it all. You know, it's like a, you were easy to love, now you're hell to hate Since you turned around and walked out that door So I'm just gonna keep on hating you Until I don't love you no more Yeah. And just... That says it all. Yeah. It's all a choice. Yeah. It is. It's, you know, hate is like a vulgar, uh, uh, um, toxic, toxic, uh, a re uh, ex and I don't want to say expression of love, but no. it's like it's love that is turned into something so foul. Yeah, it's like a toxic form. Yeah, and it's like, why am I crying my eyes out and so angry? Because I love her so much. Mm -hmm. And why am I so, I don't want this to be. And, you know, dealing with cancer was easier than dealing with her leaving me because, like, who are you going to argue with when it comes to cancer? Oh, nobody. Right. Right back to what we said. I, I, why am I going to be miserable about this? Because I can't change it. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to live my life. I'm not going to die while I'm still alive. Right. Have my moments where I think it might be easier. Right. But, you know, that said, you know, she and I did a lot of work, and did a lot of looking in the mirror, you know, and I realized, like, 
we weren't cut out for each other, but neither one of us knew it, you know, and she finally right. figured it out. Right. And uh, I'm so glad you're in a good place now and can be friends. And Thank you. It took a long time. Yeah. It took like five or six years. Yeah. I think. I forget. It's all so, you know. It's kind of but, a blur. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a blur. Everything's just great now. You know, I get together with her and the kids and her husband and we all just have dinner and play games. And we're, it's actually, we're the pod, you know what I mean? The COVID pod, you know, that's right. how we've been doing this thing. And, uh, but my whole point was like, your eyes get messed up. We got, we all have chemo brain, you know, uh, all the side effects. And it's like, well, I can be pissed and nobody would argue with me about why I'm pissed, but am I going to be happy? Right. Cause all that negative energy. Why, what, what if I just choose the life I have and I play the cards I've been dealt? You know, and I speak for me. You know, some people, yeah. they 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 have cards and I'd be like, yeah, I'm not, I don't know how to approach that one. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're gonna, right? You're gonna yeah, have we're just dealing with our own shit right here. <laughs> yeah. And each yeah. person, you know, you, you've, you know, you've read about, you know, you've learned about people like, you know, the, uh, the folks in the concentration camps or the uh, folks in the gulags and you know, just, uh, uh, Nelson Mandela, you know, it's like people have been in profound circumstances and they have chosen to f have peace. Right. To have peace of mind. And that's, you know, it's been an inspiration to me. You know, like uh, I mentioned Martin earlier on, Martin Luther King Jr., like blown away. I get how Malcolm X was like, nah, maybe we need to give him hell. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, you know, but I'm inspired. My particular personality is inspired by Martin. It's just like, Peace and love can, you know, how do we want to live our daily lives? You know, like, you know, he went in, you know, he particularly specifically scheduled with they because right, he stepped in to support the Southern, uh, <clears throat> what was it? The Southern Christian Leadership Conference, I think is what it's called. Mm -hmm. You know, he went in to support them and they would sp specifically have protests in communities that would attack them. Mm -hmm. one sheriff stood by and watched them all march and they never went back there because <laughs> they're like that's not making headlines we need to make headlines but even with that intentional like antagonistic approach it was with peace and it was from a place of love and from a place of love yeah and i just you know i think i have my teachers have taught me you can come from fear or you can come from love and neither one of them is wrong but what kind of life do you want to live you got to be true to you yeah. You got to figure out what, how you're wired and why you're wired and are, do you accept it? Do you embrace it? And then run with it. Yeah. Yeah. Just observe, you know, observing, as you said, distinguish how you're wired. Notice how you're wired. Like when one of my teachers was like, observe your own thinking. Like, oh, look at how, oh, oh, <laughs> like, you know, you and I share the, I don't you know we're clearly not preppers, but it's uh, you know like how many doses of this do I need to bring? Should I just like have a you know a, a moving truck behind me with all my yeah. stuff just in case? It's like yeah, sometimes you just gotta yeah, just gotta go forward. You know, if I'm in a tough enough situation, I'll call the local hospital and be like, "So I'm in town, right? I have a colostomy." Yeah. I got no supplies. And, you know, yeah. How do you want to help me with this? Right. Right. Mm. Yeah. It's hard. 
it's hard. It's a, it's a, it's a, I find it to be a beautiful journey. And very difficult, you know. We younger in the younger years, I equated a beautiful journey with easy. Yes. But look at all we've gotten. I say cancer was a gift for me. For me too. I'm so glad I got cancer. Cancer really, really saved my life. It really did. Ah, uh, yay! Say more about that. Yeah, it you kind of have, you know? but say a little more. Well, you know. So there, I'll share this story, and this kind of sums it up. About two years ago, I was here in my office at the CARE Project, and one of my friends who's a, like a mentor to me in the business and nonprofit world specifically, he happens to be a public speaker, a brilliant one. And I was telling him, you know, we were talking about building the CARE Project and ultimately what do I want? And I said, hey, look, I still work full-time, try to run the CARE Project, you know, I didn't know about that I was going to be doing a podcast. I didn't know the book was coming yet. And I just said, you know, I really want to grow the care project in a way that I can hire an executive director, step away from the day-to-day grind and just be sitting on the board and make sure that, you know, the mission stays the mission as the founder, but not be in the thick of it because I want to go out and share my story with young people, like maybe high school seniors through college. And he goes, oh, your breast cancer story. And I said, oh God, no. I have so much more of a story before that. Breast cancer was just the final straw, basically, right? And he's like, oh, you could totally do that. And I was like, my default thinking, who am I to do that, right? Who am I to do that? I'm not college educated. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. Where would I fit in? Like in the likes of, you know, professional speakers like him, I was like, there's no way. And he was like, you're going to do that. You could totally do that. And I'm like, this is why I told him, I go, get the fuck out of my office. <laughs> and I swung around. He laughs at me, you know, because yeah. like he never curses and I curse like a sailor. So I flip around to my computer and I check my email and I am not even kidding you. There was an email from UC Riverside, um, a group on campus had found me online. I don't know what they Googled. And um, they asked me to be their keynote speaker at their annual conference. And I said, oh, funny God, that is not what I had in mind. I'm not ready. What are you talking about? I And so I responded right away, um, kind of like your guest asking you to come back and do that show. And you're like, oh, screw it. Let's just do it. And I said, okay, I'm not a public speaker. I, I would love to talk to your group, but but if you're looking for a professional keynote, like I'm not your girl, you know, like I gave them every reason to not choose me. She's like, oh, no, no, no. We Googled you. We saw you got this Latina of Influence Award from the Hispanic Lifestyle back whenever it was. And we read your bio and it talked about being an 18-year-old mother and then realizing I need to go to a trade school and get some skills and start working. And then I got cancer and then I started a nonprofit. So they found all that to be inspiring. And I was like, Oh, okay. And I was like, well, I did say I wanted to do that. And I was like, shit, okay, I'll do it. So mind you, I had like two months to prepare, right? So I'm like, what's the theme of the conference? And it was the Mujeres group. So Women United, right? And the theme was motherhood. And essentially the underlying tagline was something like, um, you don't have to be a mother. You don't have to give birth to be a mother, right? But we can all mother each other and care for each other and that type of deal. So I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? I was an 18-year-old teenage mother 
Like the poster child for the first time you have sex, you can get pregnant. That's me. Mm. I don't feel like I was the greatest mom. I know I was a great provider. I know that I know that I worked really hard. I know that my kids were the center of my life, but I don't feel like I was the mother I wanted to be. You were a child. In that I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't like warm and squishy and I wasn't, you know, I was more like the traditional dad role, if you will. So I say all that to say, I had all this time to prepare, thinking all the while, who am I to do that, right? What am I going to possibly give to these brilliant college kids? I've never even set foot on a college campus other than to go to a basketball game. So I take myself to Texas from California by myself without a seeing eye person. I take all my extra supplies for my eye. I go to my very first Airbnb and I lock myself in there for a weekend with the intention of I'm going to write my speech, if you will, or my talk, whatever it is. And I had no clue how to prepare. So this is what I did. I flipped open my laptop and I started typing out from my most early memories, like from age three to present. And as I was typing and just vomiting out on this keyboard, these things that had happened or been or had said to me, things that were said to me, things that happened to me, um, choices I made along the way that were like life altering in some way, I was dumbfounded at all the shit I had been through. And I was sobbing when I read it back. And yet it was tears of like grief and sorrow for that small child or young teen. But then it went into, oh my God, I get it now. That's why I do that. Oh my God, that's why I chose that kind of man. Oh my God, that's why I allowed that behavior. And I had all these like epiphanies and I was like, oh my gosh, if I had to sum up what I just spilled out about my life, it's this over uh, or not over. It's this um, just chemo brain recurring theme, right? Recurring theme of you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You don't fit in. Mm-hmm. Right. So just one little example of that was. There was a time where my parents divorced when I was young. My dad ended up, um, my mom ended up remarrying a a while later and had a set of twins who I adore. My baby brothers are like eight years younger. Mm. But when I was about 14 or 15, you know, typical teenager, I just stayed in my room. I didn't want to be with the family. I didn't want to be bothered. And I remember my mom and my stepdad saying, come out here and be with the family. Do it. And I was just like, whatever. Like, no, I don't want to. And they kind of forced me into having this heart to heart conversation And I finally got vulnerable and I just said, if you really want to know, I don't feel like I fit in in this household. I don't feel like I fit in here. And I don't feel like I fit in at my dad's because it was like my dad and my brother against the world and two very different areas of California, two very different lifestyles, two very different everything. And I just didn't feel like I fit in in either household yet. Both were my parents and I love them, but And I knew they had to love me. I was their child, right? But I also knew I wasn't like their ideal child, so to speak. And that's a whole other episode. But in that moment when I said to my mom, I don't feel like I fit in here. She said to me, well, Carrie, you have to understand that you and your dad and Steve were part of my first family. And Bruce and the twins are now my new family. 
And so you might feel a certain type of way. Now, to me, as a 14-year-old or however old I was, maybe 15, that was confirmation that I didn't fit in. Right. That's just one thing. There's other things that I could share, but we'd be here all day. And so it was just instances like that from home life to school, you know, bullying, whatever, um, where I didn't feel good enough, smart enough. I didn't fit in. So when these people asked me to come speak, I was like, there is no way in hell. But I thought to myself, when I looked back at it and I saw that recurring theme, I thought, how many of us feel that way? Whether we're college educated or not, right? Right. So I went there. I had very few notes. I stood up on that stage in that lecture hall and I spoke my truth with about 10 of my best girlfriends there and my youngest daughter who had not heard half of these stories. Mm. And I shared these things. And when I looked up, there was, I mean, there was audible gasps at time. There was tears uh, in the audience. And when I was finished, the last thing I said was, I shared the story about how ironic it was that I was asked to come speak on the topic of motherhood when I felt like such a failure and I dreaded Mother's Day. Every day I dread Mother's Day. It's the hardest day of the year for me. Mm. In part, it was because I didn't have the greatest relationship with my mom. And in the other part, which I think was more painful, is that I felt like I failed my kids in that I wasn't that warm, squishy mom. I was that hard mom, right? Um, Out of survival, right? So when I shared that, I gave myself grace that I would have given someone else. Had they told me their story, of what they had gone through and why and how they were conditioned to get to that recurring theme in their own life, I would have given them all the love and grace and validation that they were normal to feel that way. And what I did on that stage is I said, today is the day that I release all shame. I release all guilt. I did the best that I knew how to do with the tools and the resources I had. And so today I love me, I accept me, I respect myself, and I know that I'm making a difference in my world right now. I can't change anything in the past, but going forward, this is who I am. And if you don't like it, there's the door. Mm-hmm. And I have felt 50 pounds lighter since that day, and I hope that everybody can get to that point at some at some sooner part in their life than age 48, you know, because I was 48 when that happened. And since then, the trajectory of my life has completely changed. Completely Hallelujah. Changed. Yeah. And that's how cancer saved your life. Yeah. Brought you to that point. It did. It did. Because now I have created a space for everybody like us that can come in here as they are, their authentic selves, whatever that is, however they're wired, And they are loved on here. They're cared for. Our tagline at the Care Project is never stop caring. Because we realize, and I know you know this firsthand, that survivorship is the hardest part. Mm -hmm. Right? And for some of us, it takes a cancer diagnosis to have an awakening and to realize that our life is worth something and we are valued. And guess what? You don't have to fucking fit in. Make your own way. Right. And that's what I've done. I've created my own life. And now these estranged relationships with family members who maybe I didn't turn out to be their ideal, they really love and appreciate me as is. 
they value me now. And it took me getting cancer for some of these relationships to be healed and to turn in what they are today. And if, if it took me getting cancer, so be it. I'd do it again. I wouldn't change my diagnosis now. If I could rewind and divert this, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. It's really given me purpose and uh, drive. Like I said, I was surviving before, and now I'm living. I'm living a life of purpose, and that is fucking priceless. Sorry, Mom, for the F word. It's fucking priceless. It is fucking priceless. I thank you so much for telling that story. It's uh, your experience. It's it's important to hear the whole thing because, like, when you and granted, you only told a part of it, but you you hearing just the positive outcome for me is just you know I want to know I want to know where you fell down I want to know where you got stopped you know because it's getting back up that can be the hardest part. It's, I mean, but it's like getting back up from what? And it's like, okay, wow, you really, like, were handed a series of experiences where you had to finally realize, like, or man, I'm going to speak for me. When yeah. I was, like, 49, that's when I looked back at the, you know, the traumas of my childhood and recognized I didn't design me. Like my therapist like put it, he goes, yeah, every one of us is born into a bar fight. And then we're supposed to just like be our best self. Yeah. <laughs> and some people That's a hell born... of a way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. And I finally realized like I didn't design me. I, you know, I'm a, I, I love old Cadillacs. I had a Sedan DeVille. So let's say I'm a 1970s Sedan DeVille Cadillac. I got a shaky muffler. One of the headlights isn't so good. The wipers are not the best. And yeah. the engine does this funny thing at about 45 miles per hour. Now, here's the thing. I didn't design it. So I'm not going to be blamed for it. But I do have to be responsible for how I navigate it going down the road. And when I mess up, I mean, both my son and my stepson, they know I'm the king of apologies. I'm a passionate dude, you know what I mean? And sometimes yeah. I say something. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. And I was talking to my stepson years ago about apologizing. He was a teenager. I go, dude, how often do I apologize to you when his mother couldn't keep going? She burst out laughing. She's like, all the time. I go, all the time. I go, and you want to know how much easier it's become? It hasn't. It's hard every time. I hate apologizing. Like, if I don't apologize, then maybe you won't have noticed that I just hurt your feelings. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> But I finally yeah. realized I didn't make me. I didn't design me. I fell into being me. Pink Floyd, 10 years have gone behind. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. It's like, oh, wait a second. I'm alive. I have kids. Wait, what? Huh? Yeah. yeah. Cancer yeah. got me to realize there's no dress rehearsal for life. You just live. I was tormented. I'd forgotten. Uh, my fellow, as you know, I'm a cancer survivorship coach and my fellow, I have a fellow coach who graduated and, and we've been coaching each other every two weeks for the last, going on 11 years now. And it's, it's been incredible. I asked any, any of my classmates after graduation, anybody want to practice with each other? We just never stopped, you know, because now we're like, wait, we both have a 
fantastic coach to work with us as we find our way. And uh, where was I going with this? Uh, I was working with her, and she said, hold up about the podcast because I was feeling good about it. I go, what's going on? She's like, do you remember when I was coaching you because you were losing your mind about how scared you were to do this, how afraid you were? You didn't know how. You, I said, I'm going to create a podcast, period. Had no idea how to do it. That was me. Yeah, started reaching out to folks. Called my friend as a sound man. Can I hire you to be my consultant? No, you can't, but you, I'll be your consultant and you can hire me for actual paid work. I want to support you. I want to get behind you on this. And and thank heavens, I well, not thank heavens, the only reason I was able to do it was because I got to the same place you did. I was like, you know, a couple, like a year prior to that, like a couple of years ago, I was 49, was when I began to realize I didn't design me. Why am I hating the part of myself that freezes sometimes? Yes. And now I'm like, sometimes I'm your fiercest advocate Sometimes I am your fiercest advocate, Carrie, and sometimes I'm going to freeze. Yeah. I tell my boy that. Like, eh, sometimes your dad freezes. I go, trust me, if something's ever going down, I'm not freezing. I got you. But, like, right. we'll be fishing, and he'll catch, he caught a fish last summer around the boat, and I want him to stand in the sun with the sun in front of him, his back to the other, you know, so it can be the best light. And instead of saying... Could you move your body to the other side of the ship and turn around the other side of the ship, the boat? Yeah. I go, what are you doing? Because I'm worried the fish is going to be out of water too long. What did he do? He just laughed. Oh, there's Papa freezing again. Yeah. <laughs> and I told him, I go, yeah, when it, sometimes your father's a knucklehead and I freeze. And I, and I know you don't like it. It's not pleasant. I don't like it when I do it. And I don't like it when people do it to me. I start raising my voice because I can't think clearly. I'm like, but it's who I am. And I love That's you me. beyond words. And sometimes I'm going to mess up. And like the freedom I have in that, that kind of relationship to myself is what had me do this podcast. I'm sitting here bearing my soul to the whole world. That's it. That's it. And there's something so therapeutic about it. And I yeah. learned something about myself every time. I learned something about, of course, I learned a ton about you as a guest, but like I learned something about survivorship. Mm -hmm. we, the, you know, I, takes a while for you and I to get to know each other to find our groove and then we kind of fall into something like we have and this whole then the real stuff starts coming out you know that's uh it's it's so important to me that if however I expose myself because I mean gosh if you want to see my list of flaws this is episode well no it's not episode anything it's podcast number 37 so when it finally comes out it, I'll have done 20 more, but you know, it's a uh, listening to the first 37 episodes. You want to hear my flaws? My goodness, you better get a notebook and a few pens. You're going to run out of ink, you know? And now I just get like, yeah, you and everybody else, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, people have said that about my show too. It's like, um, you know, some people who you think believe in you and then you tell them, yeah, I'm going to do this podcast. And they're like, oh, you're going to be a guest? No, I'm going to host my own show. You are? Yeah, well, what are you going to talk about? I guess you'll have to listen and find out. But I've had a few people come to me who are a little bit leery in the beginning and wondering how and why and who am I to do that and come back and say, oh, my gosh, I love your show. You seem so comfortable, like you were born to do that. Mm. 
And and I don't take that as like, I'm not the super eloquent person, but I think what you and I have in common is that we genuinely want to hear the stories and lives of other people. We want to know their story and not just know it for the sensationalism of whatever, ooh, they had staged this or their terminal or this. Like we don't, that's, it's not about that. What it's about is the human design, the human story, the human spirit, right? How did you rise to the occasion? You know, how does that, me sharing the story of, oh my God, I've never been on a college campus. And here I went and spoke, you know, two months after saying, I want to speak and tell my story. I went to being a keynote speaker. Like, who am I to do that? But how, But more importantly is, how did it change my life? And I know that I know that you genuinely care. And that's why you and I are good at what we do. Because it comes from a place of authenticity. It comes from a place of being wired in a way that we really do care a lot. Sometimes more than we want to, but it's just how we're wired. So we go with it. Well said. Yeah. I'm not all that articulate. When I was a kid... Excuse me. My family, we were at my uncle's house. We'd gone and visited, and my brother, mom, stepdad, and uncle were all being so witty and so funny and so quick, and I couldn't keep up. And in that moment, I decided I'm stupid, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm gonna be funny so people will like me. And I also decided that I can't be as articulate as them, so I'm gonna learn to use the word fuck in more ways than any human ever has. <laughs> <laughs> and so my vocabulary is not that broad. It's it's extremely limited. And uh, it takes me far more words to say things than a lot of other folks because I don't have a great vocabulary. And I came into this with like, yeah, I'm not the brightest bulb on the tree. I don't know a ton about cancer. I all, But what I do know is just as you said, I'm really curious about your experience. And when you open your heart and share it, I'm going to return with something similar from myself because I, I, I don't want you, I never want a guest to be like, oh my God, what did I just say? What did I just share? You know, I want, I want to, uh, cause I don't want to talk about myself too much, but clearly I'm not afraid to speak and tell my story. And I feel like it, you know, I feel, uh, there's just value in, you know, a, my guest hearing a similar experience. And also, you know, I, I, when you volunteer something very vulnerable about you, I want to do the same. I want to keep that field level. I'm not, you know, maybe it's the only way that I can have the courage to even ask you certain questions mm-hmm. is because I'm like, yeah, yeah. That time I that I couldn't get engaged. to the bathroom. Hmm? Yeah, but it, it's engaging, right? Because I've been a guest on other shows where I feel like literally they just wanted to fill a spot, if you will. You know, they wanted to hear a little bit of it, but not get too deep. And, oh, okay. Man. And while I'm speaking to them, I feel like they're not even really soaking in what I'm saying. And so I think it's important for us as hosts to share some of our experience, to engage. It's not a comparison. It's not a contrast. It's engaging and sharing. And I think, like you said, it's a, that vulnerability piece is so important. Yeah, yeah, there's, I'm, I'm really excited to listen to your show now, as I, I can't remember if I told you this before the show or once we got rolling, but I don't 
listening to your episodes and I don't read much about you because I want to be as curious as the guest when they throw their earbuds in and press play. Mm-hmm. I don't know a damn thing about you except that you have a podcast and a website, or not a website, a, a not-for-profit, and you've had cancer and you're more than willing to share it. And I'm like, tell me everything. I want to know all about it. Right. And, you know, I, I think there's value in all kinds of podcasts, yeah. in all kinds of conversations. Um, and I'm clear that mine is different in that I don't have any questions except how old were you when you were diagnosed and what were you diagnosed with. And from there, we can go any direction. From there, it's your show. And it's if I recreate who you are and get curious about you, <clears throat> then everything that matters to you most becomes the forefront of the conversation. And yeah, I'm a passionate dude. I'm going to get excited and start, you know, yeah. talking about other stuff and asking you just whatever gets me curious. But yeah, it's uh, it's really fun. And I'm very excited to listen to your show because now that I know how you are and uh, your willingness to laugh and cry, your willingness to be vulnerable and equally just to like, just throw something over the railing and be like, whatever. Yeah. Like, this is my life. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm just gonna be, it's gonna yeah. go as it goes. And if I bump into something, I'll take care of it. That's it. <laughs> what else can we do, right? What else, what else can, can we do? We do? <laughs> so you were... That might be my new show. What else can we do? A new yeah. show? You got another one now? I'm gonna get a new show now. <laughs> Oh, I'm barely keeping up with this one. You know, and I get scared every time I come on to interview somebody. I got anxious to start it for you. It started yesterday. And for other people, it starts, you know, an hour before. And I don't know, but, you know, I used to do, you know, when I would do my regular performances, like, you know, with my band or, or solo, I get nervous every single time before. It's just, it's just how I am. And, yeah, you know, I'm like, go through the whole thing. But I also am an observer of, I'm, I'm also an observer of my own thinking yeah. and I've been doing it long enough. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's happening. Oh, you again. Oh, you're chiming in to tell me that I'm going to mess this one up and Oh my gosh, what's going to happen if it's like, thank you so much for your contribution yeah. to the conversation brain. Yeah. Now, why yeah. don't you go do things like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll call on you when I need directions, when I need to go somewhere, when I need to find my keys, but right now you're not helping. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get a little, I get a little anxious before each uh, recording I do as well. Um, nothing crazy, but I, I think in, in the beginning when I started not knowing anything, um, not having all the equipment and just literally with uh, my laptop from work and my headset that I use for conference calls, you know, recorded via Zoom because again, it was during COVID and um, the very first episode was with my friend Vern, who took care of me yeah. when I had a near-death experience after reconstruction. And um, he literally helped save my life. And so we talked about it. So it was emotional. And it was um, probably the best episode to start with because I didn't have time to think about all the technical aspect. I just went with it and had a conversation. And that set the tone for all the rest. So the audio is much better as it's gone on um, when people are in person, obviously, or like you and I have both have equipment, you know, but um, 
I don't consume myself any longer with worrying about that so much. I mean, I just, I'm there to have conversation. I sometimes will do a little bit of prep work, but not a lot because like you, I just kind of want to hear it from you. Um, unless it's a specialty of obviously of services or something like that. But um, like I interviewed former NFL player, Devin Still, whose daughter Leah was diagnosed with stage four cancer years ago. Mm. And um, they lived it very publicly and they've started their own foundation. And, you know, I was on Clubhouse and I was in a room and he spoke to someone who was very anxious about giving up on their dreams. And he just spoke life into this woman when none of these other so-called celebrities would step in, step up and answer. And I shot him a DM on Instagram and I just said, I know you're going to think I'm a crazy lady. I'm not stalking you, um, but I just want to say thank you for giving that woman what she needed. And I'm so proud of you for doing that. And then I realized later he's my son's age. So it didn't sound creepy me saying I'm proud of you, but <laughs> he reached back out and he just said, you know, thank you so much for that. And I just said, you know, I, I too faced cancer. I have a nonprofit as well. We do the same thing as yours. If you would consider it, I'd love to have you on. And he said, oh, I'd love to support you in that way. And I was like, Aww. what? Right, right, right. So, an NFL player, what? So, um, but I had him on and it was just like you and I talking now. It was very natural and it was great. And you know what? People are people. There you go. And no matter how famous a person is, there's still a person who Absolutely. has to get up and brush their teeth and yeah. wash the bed sheets. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's there's real freedom in that and recognizing like, And recognizing that, that just like it's, yeah. and, I, and I'm so happy for you that you're able to just chat with him. Yeah, it was powerful. It was powerful because I didn't chat to him as the NFL player. I, I chatted with him as someone who overcame adversity and challenges and um, to become a college player and then to become in the NFL and then to be hit with his daughter having supposedly terminal cancer. And here she is today thriving and how just like me, his life was completely changed following cancer. Yeah. And now he's got this foundation and he's doing major things and, and helping, you know, so many families affected by pediatric cancer. But, you know, um, yeah, we're all just human, right? Doing the best yeah. we can. Yeah. Mm, and I feel so free now that I've had cancer. I feel so right. free. Right. It just, you know, who knows when it would have happened in my life. It naturally would have happened. But cancer, like, you know, cancer hit the put the hit the accelerator for me. And so, yeah, we're, we're going to do this in about 12 months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. so you are just shy of being 10 years out. It was 2012. Mm -hmm. And. It's now 2021, so you're like, what? When was it? When was it in 2012? Um, I got my diagnosis at the very, I want to say January 31st. I had my mastectomy February 13th. I'll never forget that because I came home on Valentine's Day, <laughs> and my boyfriend at the time said, "I can't handle this," and left. Mm. I was like, "Okay, so here we go." So yeah, February. So that's why I'm having my this. big celebration. Yeah. He didn't come out and say it, but his actions did when he left that day and yeah. I didn't hear from him for weeks. Sounds like it's good that he left. Yeah. You, you don't know, want someone who can't handle it around 
trying to pretend they can handle it. it it's right. got to be a real kick in the gut. I'm not stepping over that, but like, right. if you can't handle this, yeah. Oh well, because then well, you know, we make it about us versus right. like, what are we gonna right. say? Though? Yeah. Well, you know what? What I what I didn't know then is that he had a whole host of other um, emotional and psychological issues going on that I wasn't aware of, mm. and. Um, you know, he was there when I was diagnosed. He was there the day I went in for surgery with my parents, and he was there when I woke up. Um, it, but it was, I think, that overnight. Uh, ultimately, he did me a, a favor, and yeah. um, you know, unfortunately, I, I want to say maybe two years later, I don't, I don't really recall. Um, he ended up taking his own life. And it was really, really sad because I knew his three sons very well. I still know them. I love them. Um, And they were young men. And uh, he just had a lot of unresolved issues that I I didn't know about. And so he wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to support him. And he definitely couldn't support me. Right. So, um, but yeah, it's, and, and ultimately, you know, going back to what we said in the beginning, when you're diagnosed and you're trying to console everybody else and reassure them like you're going to be okay there's no way I had two kids there one out of the country 32 basketball kids my parents my three brothers I couldn't take care of one more person I couldn't so while some people said oh you're just going through it all alone it probably was the best thing for me to do so right you're already full if the person wasn't there to support you absolutely no, it's uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, but the second time I got diagnosed, I went through it alone. My uh, my wife ended our marriage after my first diagnosis, and then uh, ten months later, I was diagnosed the second time, and I was like, I was like, okay, I actually learned how to ask for help, and I can't go do this on my own. So I went to the Helping Hands website. And emailed it to all my friends and said, I'm going to be having surgery in New York City four hours away. If you know anybody down there, tell them to go ahead and sign up and come visit me in the hospital. It's like, almost seems like craziness, right? But I was just like, I'm really clear. This is really hard. And I don't want to be in the hospital recovering the whole time and have no one visiting me. And then once I got home, I said, will you please sign up to bring me some food or to come and see how I'm doing? Just talk with me. Right. Because I'm like, I, I have a kid and I have all my family who's far away. Like... I, I want support and what I would not have wanted was a person who couldn't handle it and was like, you know, you know, and then I'm having to deal with that. I already got people in my, in my family who are having a hard time handling it. Right. And I'm like, you know, how does grief show up? Sometimes the people who you can most count on not doing so well or that you know other people's grief shows up you know they're the person you can't count on and then they show up powerfully it's like you don't know how grief's gonna absolutely have you show up so absolutely man i'm glad that he moved on i'm so sorry for the his children's loss oh my goodness yeah but you're coming up you're like eight months away from being 10 years out yeah that's wonderful i look forward to Hearing yeah. about that celebration that you're having. Yeah. But what be if a I jinx time. it? Oh my God. Yeah. I, I had a cancer free roast when I was finally cancer free. I had you? my friends friends and family just come up on stage and just shred me. Oh, I love that idea. Yeah, all that love and support was so wonderful and it was, you know, just tender and heartbreaking. So when it was over, 
I was like, okay, I need y'all to just like, you know, and yeah. oh my yeah. gosh, they were ruthless. Oh, and it man. was wonderful. I, I yeah. never laughed so hard. I that is an awesome idea. Yeah, yeah. I got diagnosed again. I was like, yeah, maybe we won't have another roast after yeah, this. Yeah, let's one. just <laughs> not do that shit again. <laughs> it's on YouTube. If you go to Bert Scholl and then you go to Cancer Roast, there's three. I stopped editing the videos, and I apologize to all of you who never got put up there. But like three, <laughs> my sister and my former wife and one of my friends. I just like it's freaking hysterical. But, oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, it was really. That's fun. great. So, this has been wonderful, and I've really enjoyed getting to know you. And absolutely, me too. Laughing with you and learning so much about you. I want you to tell everyone again the name of your website, and your podcast, and all your socials, so they can find you and start listening. And join me in listening to your show. I can't wait to. Yeah. Listen to you. Yeah. So my nonprofit is called The Care Project, Inc. And the website is the thecareprojectinc.org. And there you can find um, uh, a way to the podcast, which is called Handle with Care, Breast Cancer and Beyond. And yes, it is for more than breast cancer patients. Hence the beyond in the title. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then you can find the book there, uh, Handle with Care or your support group in a book, which again is great for newly diagnosed um, breast cancer patients, but but really any cancer patients and their loved ones. Um, you can find me on Instagram. Personally, at TCP Founder is my personal Instagram. And then, of course, the nonprofit is The Care Project, Inc. Yeah. And I'm also on Facebook. The same tags? Same tags. Uh, the Care Project, Inc. is our business page. And then uh, my personal page is just Carrie Madrid. Mm. And that's part of your socials you share, apparently. It is. It's kind of like a... Uh, I'm an open book. Okay, yeah. My, I keep mine. My, my Facebook is like, no, this is my me and my friends and all my inappropriate jokes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what I have on Facebook? I have a private group. I have a private group for my very inner circle, and that's where I can... <laughs> when I want to post something or I want to reply to something, I just put it in there, and I'm like, guys, did you see this shit? You know? <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> because I never started... My personal Facebook was never for business but you know organically that's kind of what happened and i thought mm -hmm. maybe i should start a professional page and then i thought well who am i to have a professional page there oh, i go there who go. am i right so in fact i was just talking to my friend who's a marketing expert he's like you really should probably start the podcast its own social media and i'm like yeah i'll think about it i don't know what's your take should i do that oh so you have oh you're saying you have a social feed for the organization correct and the you have one for yourself and you're wondering if you should have one for your podcast i mean if you're posting your episodes on your organizational mm. feed i'm doing them on everywhere everywhere i'm at they're there yes yeah, so but i kind of feel like maybe i should have a dedicated page now that i think it's past the trial run and i'm probably going to keep doing this <laughs> Yeah, I guess, 45 I guess, right. episodes later. Well, my cancer survivorship coaching feed is separate from my podcast feed. Because yeah. I was really, uh, I had put my uh, coaching feed to bed. I'm like, I don't know if I need a coaching thing. But then yeah. I brought in a marketing person and she was like, you just want it there. Doesn't have to post all the time, but you just want it there. A little something right. here and there. So I'd already had the podcast. So now I have both. And uh, yeah. 
you know, I'm not a big social media person. It's really a stretch for me to, mm -hmm. you know, to, to, to post regularly and to, and to put my thoughts out. I, I'm, I'm way more comfortable because I don't know what the hell I'm ever going to say. And I mean, you know, I mean, gosh, if you go back and listen to all the episodes I've done, it's just like, you know, I'd rather kind of just find my way through a conversation if I go to write it and type it and put it That's in me. the post, then I'm like, uh, I'm going to revise this 37 times yeah. and then forget about it in the meantime. Yeah, so I do that too. I don't know. I mean, should you have a separate feed for your podcast? That's a good question. I don't know. Like I like, I, like you, I have my, my coaching website, and in that is my podcast. Yeah. And in that is my, uh, my um, what do you call it? Um, I'm not remembering a damn thing right now. It's so funny. Uh, I'm transferring. I'm transferring my chemo brain to you right now. <laughs> I have a link tree. I have a link tree. I don't know if you have one, but I love it. It's the greatest thing ever. I don't know it's what that is. I, I just have my website. People, I see link tree, but I just have to go yeah, to my website and just, all my stuff's on my website. What's the point of link tree? Well, link tree is is so my website is my website. That's not Carrie Madrid. That's the Care Project Inc. It's the nonprofit I started, which I don't know that I'll be there my entire life. But link tree is just a link that has you can find me on every single thing, every article that's been written about me, any podcasts I've done, my own show, my clubhouse. So any way you need to contact me, whether it be my book, my podcast, whatever, it's all on this one link and it's free. It's fantastic. Hmm. Like a modern day resume. Interesting. I thought that's what my website was. It is. Okay. But so my website is within that. So like how you have your coaching and you have this and you have that. I mean, if you have separate things, you can easily direct people to various things. So it's just a way to direct people to the various things you do aside from going to your website. If they don't want to go to the web, navigate right. a website, they can just go to Linktree and just click on it directly. It's kind of like well, your, so hi your highlight reel almost. It's Yes, it is. But I have it. It's like a, you know, like on Instagram, it's in my bio. Mm-hmm. If you go on Instagram, it's literally in my profile on my bio. If you click that, you can reach me wherever. Hmm. I'll have to look further into that. Yeah. Just click I, on mine on Instagram and then yeah. you'll see what it looks like. And I will. Yeah, I'm going to do that when we're done. The resources page. That's what I have on my website is addition. One of the pages is resources. It's just like. Yeah. Yeah, and I can put you all on there. I have it broken down by nationwide, and then I have it as you know different states because you know our you know, right. particular regions, like you know awesome. our local cancer resource centers for this region, but then some things are for the state, right? Some things are national. Mm. Well, thank you for all you do, and thank you for having me. It's really an honor to be here. When you told me that it was a long form podcast, I was like, oh, I've heard of those, but I've never been on one, and. This is so refreshing. Like we had a full-on conversation. I feel like we've had dinner. Yes, thank you. We did have dinner. <laughs> Thanks for this. The best date I've had in nine years. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it too. I really yeah. did. It's a super treat having you on here. Thank you so much. Absolutely. All right, bye-bye. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in. I truly hope this podcast was of value to you. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. 
If you'd like to support But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. See you all in the next episode, and thank you so much for listening. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as The Saint Kid. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The host and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.